Hello and welcome to another edition of Atlas Information Live. As always, we are your host, Atlas Alex, and uh, we are glad to have you here today. Happy to have you join us on what is going to be an interesting exploration. Uh, we often run into individuals online professing the importance of awakening and the importance of the practice of semen retention without fully understanding the purposes of sexual magic, for example, and awakening and manifesting one's desires and endless, endless reams of expressions of so-called spirituality and spiritual sexuality and on and on and on and on and on it goes rarely if ever do these so-called spiritual people ever talk about the dissolution of the ego rarely do they ever mention their innermost their true self or their divine mother In your travels, you will discover, you will find that most so-called spirituality, be it contemporary so-called new age expressions of spirituality, or e even the de degenerated religions and what they teach, what they promote, it very often focuses on, on, on you, on, on me, on, uh, on the I, on what we will achieve, on what I can expect, what I hope to gain, how I hope to ascend, how I can manifest the life that I want that I can live forever, that I can be immortal, and the language that they use. We are all gods already. We are all God. Now, on one level, on one philosophical level, this is there's truth to that statement. But without fleshing out precisely what one means by I and God, the implication is very clear 
that it is all too easy and it is all too common for the I to believe itself to be God, the equivalent of God, an aspect of God, made in the image and likeness of God. So, of course, with that rationalization, with that rationale, why shouldn't I manifest my desires? Why shouldn't I have the power of creation in the palm of my hand? Why shouldn't I enjoy all experiences, carte blanche, without exception, without any sort of restraint whatsoever? Because after all, it's all natural. It's all God. God it's God's creation. God created it all. And we are here to experience. We are all God experiencing him, him, himself or itself. We are all source energy experiencing itself through all of its different manifestations and expressions. So it's all God. It's all good. These rationalizations, and that's what they are, intellectual rationalizations, fly in the face of objective reality. And this way of thinking, this approach to spirituality, or, in, or indeed Gnosis, there are many self-styled Gnostics out there who read, for example, the Pista Sophia or other Gnostic, so-called Gnostic texts in the, the uh, Nag Hammadi scrolls and the Gnostic Gospels and what have you. And they interpret those texts using, using purely their rational mind. Or worse, they read them literally. They personify, for example, the Aeons and the Archons. And they envision, they fantasize about archons being an actual race of metaphysical beings of some kind. Without having a deeper, direct, conscious experience of the metaphysical reality. Of what these symbols and what these words represent. And the implications that they have on our lives day to day because all the archons and all the aeons are inside of us there are no archons out there there are no aeons out there and for that matter there is no heaven out there and there is no hell out there there is no out there It's all in here. Out there is a projection. And it's an illusion. And the more we identify with that out there, the more we are deluded. We are deluded into the subjectivity and the falsehood of subjective reality. And that delusion stems first and foremost 
from our identification with the I, with the false self, with the personality, with the physical body, with our sensations, with our emotions, with our thoughts, and our beliefs, and our rationalizations, our interpretations, our subjectivity, we identify with and call I. And boy, if there is one term, if there is one phrase that makes the hair stand up on the back of our neck, it's the phrase, my truth. No, 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 this is my truth. And how important it is to speak your truth and so on and so forth. As if truth is dependent upon you, that subjective I that you identify yourself with. That that I, that subjective reality you have, is valid constitutes no no it doesn't i don't care about i don't care about the truth all i care about is my truth well in clinical psychology they have a word for that it's called delusional there's people who suffer from schizophrenia and suffer from hallucinations who, who see people that don't exist, that have multiple personalities, that believe realities which objectively don't exist. They're entirely subjective. But with a little rebranding and some excellent marketing and some you know, very popular, uh, well-read, well-published New Age gurus and self-help industry and celebrities, delusion can be repackaged under this euphemism, my truth, and now all of a sudden it's glorified. The thing about my truth, the thing about that delusion, have, have you ever explored how it is even possible that hallucinations and delusions exist? Just consider for a moment. If you've ever seen the film A Beautiful Mind, starring Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe and Jennifer Connelly. But Russell Crowe plays uh, Nash, Dr. Nash. And is it John? John Nash, we believe, who's a famous Nobel Prize winning economist. Now, John Nash suffered from schizophrenia. And for the better part of his adult life, he believed completely in the existence of three, or at least according to the film, three particular characters in his life. One was his college roommate. Um, the other was the college roommate's niece. 
you believe. And another was a, uh, a CIA black ops agent who was uh, working, according to Nash, who's working on code breaking and stop preventing a Soviet plot from planting a nuclear device on U.S. soil and detonating it in a major city in the United States. And so John Nash was recruited by the CIA uh, to be a code breaker, to, to find evidence and to foil the plot, to figure out where and when they were planning on planting this, this nuclear device and, and in, in what city. If you've seen the film, then you know about the story and you know how it unfolds. Now, to, to John Nash, those characters, until he finally has his breakthrough moment, those characters are, are real. And to the end of his life, they followed him around. He just simply learned to ignore them. He, sim he simply learned that they were delusions of his, that they weren't real. And the reason he was able to come to that conscious realization, he woke up from his delusion, if you will, is because after decades, uh, his old roommate from college returned and his niece, uh, along with his niece, and he, and in a, in a moment of, 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 of clarity, he realizes she doesn't get old. She doesn't age. My roommate's niece is still 12, the same age she was when we were going to university 25 years earlier. That's impossible. That the, that the, she can't be real because she doesn't get old. She's, she's still 12. And so that, that doesn't eliminate her doesn't doesn't end the delusions the characters are still there they're always in the background but at least now he knows they're not real they can't be real but how is it possible how is it possible that they can be so real for him and yet nobody else can see them Now, of course, neurologists and psychologists have all sorts of theories as to the machinations in the brain and how this is possible. We don't know if anybody has ever studied the optical nerves of those with schizophrenia. But it is almost a certainty that their hallucinations trigger the optical nerve and the optical center in the brain, just like anything else. In other words, they are real. They are subjectively real. They are real insofar as we all believe in this subjective reality, in this illusion. We all believe that this illusion is real, but it's not. 
this whole virtual reality isn't so-called real. We are all in hell. The fact that we identify with all of this and we believe in materia, materialism and we believe not only that, we believe that materialism is fundamental. By that, we're referring to the materialist scientists. By, by We're referring to humanity in general. Sees reality as foundational and fundamental and matter as primary and foundational. Regardless of what physics and quantum physics and all these other theories and all these other discoveries that they have made and the electromagnetic spectrum and everything is energy. Yeah, yeah, that's all well and good. But from our direct conscious experience, so-called, from our experience, <laughs> the rea reality is physical. And we believe it is. And we believe it is so. And we live that way. We behave that way. So someone who is so-called hallucinating is simply a little bit deeper in hell than the rest of us. They are living in their reality. is just a little bit more subjective than the rest of us. That is why their reality, their truth, can be so undeniably real to them. Just like individuals who take hallucinogens and go on their trips. Where are they going? Well, they believe that they're going to higher planes of existence, higher dimensions. But they're, they're going wholly and uniquely into the lunar astral plane, into the protoplasmic virtual reality. They're just going deeper into hell. And that's why their experiences can be so utterly fantastic and yet differ, so wildly differ compared to others. Taking the same hallucinogen at the same time in the same place can go and have a completely different experience. There's no objectivity to that reality. Just like there's very little objectivity to our reality. And science has even begun to discover that with things like the observer effect, et cetera, et cetera. So the observer affects what they're, what's being observed. Why are we mentioning all this? Why are we bringing all of this up? Because the topic for today, we entitled this talk, Demi-Humans. Demi meaning partial or less than or unwhole, if you will. Half, even. And let's face it, for the vast majority of this humanity, half is... Uh, calling them half-human is actually really generous. And you just need to go around the world and just observe the way the vast majority of people on the planet behave, and how they live their lives, and what they value, 
The problem is, of course, how modern the modern world defines human. Right? They, the actual meaning and definition of the word human has been lost. They believe that human just simply means a hominid. That human is refers to the physicality, but that's not what a human being is. That's only part of what it means to be human. The hume in human, the earth, the earthen vessel, that's the hume part of human. But the other part is mind. Now, of course, the materialists, they have no problem with that definition. They say, oh, well, we all have mind, we all have intellect, right? So we're humans. We have uh, a physical vessel and we have mind. There's there, there you go, human. But of course, in our recent video that we made, we clarified that manas is not the rational mind. Manas does not refer to intellect. The rational mind and intellect is very much associated with the brain, and that's part of our hume. The rational mind operates much like a computer system. That's why we are able to mimic it through artificial intelligence and create artificial synapses and so on, just like we have in the brain. And we can mimic the mind with technology. Well, you can't mimic manas with technology. It's impossible. It's metaphysical. It's the meta-mind of being. It's the great all-mind of source of the universe. It is non-local. And so it cannot be reduced in any way. It is universal. It is omniscient and omnipresent. And we outline this. We demonstrate this as a human being is a triune human being. Hume, manas, and being. Because that's the other part of human being. People like to drop the being part. They just stick with human. Oh, we're humans, humans, humans. Well, then they forget about the being. So... What people call human in this day and age, the rational hominid, the intellectual hominid, is at best 33% human. That's being very generous and taking the triune human being, hume, manas, and being, and making them each an equal aspect of an equilateral triangle. 33, 33, 33. Or 33 and a third, if you want to be absolutely precise. And a true human being must be this, because we are made in the image and likeness of God. As above, so below. As within, so without. According to the, you know, according to the uh, Hermetic principles, of correspondence. So God is a Trinity, a triunity. That is the source of the entire universe. Is that a triunity of? Masculine, feminine, and union. 
that has its correspondence in the human being. Masculine, feminine, and union of those two aspects, which is beingness, being both. You have the two pillars of the tree of life, and then you have the edifice, and you have the, the, the center, the center pillar, which represents the union of those, those two polarities. That's a true human being, a triune human being. But the vast majority of this humanity lives, for the most part, as 33 and a third percent of that. Because we live as intellectual hominids. We live in our physical bodies and our rational minds. Oh, and of course, our emotional selves as well, but those emotions are ruled by our egos. They're governed by our egos. By craving and aversion, by lust, by fear, by greed, etc., etc., etc. And even what we call love is very often attachment. We have many people today are mistaken. What they call love is actually fear and attachment and desire and many complex complications of sentimentality and animal emotions wrapped up in the rational mind, rationalizes it and says, oh, well, he must really love me. Like when you come home and your dog is like going crazy because you're home. Oh, he's so happy to see me. He's so happy to see me. He loves me so much. And so on. Well, that's, that dog is almost entirely ruled by attachment. Like most dogs are as a devolving species. We call them man's best friend because they are so attached to us. Their entire world revolves around us and their relationships to us. That's why we, we are so, um, in many ways, we find them so endearing. They worship us. How could we not? How could we not be taken in by that? The problem with being a demi-human, if it's not self-evident to you, is that it is not a sum-zero game. So we can say that someone who is trapped in their, uh, sorry, identified with their physical body and their personality and their rational mind, at best represents 33 and a third percent of a human being. But that suggests that all they need to do is gain access to the other 66 and two thirds percent. And they can advance, they can grow 
and become a true human being. And on the, on the face of it, on the surface, it does appear that way because the numbers, the mathematics suggest that. If you are one third of a, of a, of a trinity, then why not simply gain access to awaken your consciousness or expand your consciousness perhaps is a better way to put it because we're trying to use the words that they use that are typically used expand your consciousness expand your horizons grow develop and then you will fill in the blanks of that triunity and you will know yourself, right? Even in Gnosis, we say know yourself, yourself, your innermost being. And how do you do that? Well, you do that because of becoming conscious. And then what is it that you know precisely? Well, you, you know that which your being is given unto you to know. You're downloading, if you will, from metamind. You're accessing things like the Akashic Records. You're accessing things like Da'at, Gnosis, the universal knowledge of the universe. And you, are, you have gained access to objective knowledge, which then your rational mind has to then process and, and deliver to the world, i.e. write down or paint or put into music or however you do that in your own unique way. You become a unique expression of the metamind of being. Because your being is an individuated essence of the Logos. And so Metamind takes on a unique expression through that being. And you, in service of your innermost being, you as the vehicle, the vessel for that being in this world, likewise reflects that uniqueness and expresses it in that unique way. That's why it is that we have so many different expressions of love in music, in lyric, in prose, in poetry, in painting, in sculpture, in film, on stage, and on and on and on and on it goes. Infinite different expressions of love and no two expressions are alike. And that's how that's possible. That objective truth and nature of love in its purity of experience, of knowing that. Everybody knows it. Everybody can access it and know it. But their individuated experience of it is unique. What they're experiencing is objective and universal. But their unique experience of it and, and how they express it and share it becomes unique. So again, coming back to it, it, it seems straightforward. Well, then all we have to do is awaken, awaken our consciousness and, and know our, our innermost being, and we gain access to the secrets of the universe, and boom, we're complete. We're going to be 100%, right? Because we're going to fill in the other 66 and two-thirds percent.
The problem is that there is a reason why this humanity is only 33 and a third percent. Because the 66 and two thirds is occupied by ego. There's a reason why. And in our video, we attempted to show this by a true human being having two pillars, one green and one blue, Hume and Manas. But in the actual human condition, both of those pillars are green. In other words, our consciousness is bottled up inside of the ego. Our Manas, our being, is bottled up inside of the ego. And that's self-evident. Observe yourself. Where's your being? Who do you identify as? When, you're, when you feel proud or afraid or angry, frustrated, lustful, does, do you experience that as, oh, there's my anger. There's, there's anger trying to influence me. Or there's lust trying to influence me. Or do you say, God, I'm so angry that I... That beingness, that conscious amness is bottled up inside of that ego in those moments. And according to Master Samael, this humanity is 97% ego on average. So if you think we're being harsh, by saying this humanity is only 33 and a third human, we're generous to the power of 10. Because in reality, according to Master Samael, we're only this humanity is only 3% conscious on average. Which means only 3% human. The rest, it's rational animal. It's rational ego mind. It's bottled up inside all of those negative emotions and all that attachment and beliefs and everything else that goes along with it. And you, you all know what that's, what that's like. Ninety-seven percent of who and what we are is enslaved contained within this what we what in Hebrew they call shaitan it's the same word in uh, Arabic and that translates to the adversary the false self the amalgamation of all of our egos that false self that satan which is the source of all of our suffering all of our ignorance all of our hypnosis, and thus is what creates our so-called reality, 
and what creates hell, our hell, and my truth, whatever my truth is, that subjective reality. And in that circumstance, regardless of the number, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you want to use a 33 and a third percentage, or you want to use 3%, according to Samael and Weor, it, do, it doesn't really matter. In between those two, and it really is in between those two, somewhere, right? The fact of the matter is, is that even those so-called spiritual seekers, they don't know themselves. And they have very little access to the metamind. But you will find Many, many, many people doing all sorts of magic. You will see them manifesting their desires and promoting such practices and seeking to awaken powers, telepathy, telekinesis, clairvoyance of various different kinds, because there's many, many, many different kinds of clairvoyance. But what happens? What happens if someone is developing, let's take that 33% number for a second. If someone's developing the 66 But we said that that 66 doesn't, it's, it's, not, it's not that it's vanished. It does, it's not that it doesn't exist. Well, in the case of the solar bodies, they don't exist. They have to be created. But the point is, is what are they created with? They're created from the lunar bodies. The lunar bodies have to be transmuted into solar bodies. The point is, is that the 66% is there. It's just it's bottled up inside of the ego. It's subjective. It's at a lower vibration. It's because it's contained, it's trapped within this prison of, of, of ego, of hell, of our individual uh, shaitan, the adversary. So what happens if you start developing that 66% and developing powers and awakening that consciousness without liberating it, without freeing it from the ego, without eliminating the egos, what happens? What is the only thing that can happen if you have a power, a capacity, that's contained 
And now you're going to empower, you're going to activate that capacity. You're going to develop it. But you do nothing to help liberate it from its prison, from its shell, from its container. What ends up being empowered? What ends up developing the powers, the capacities that you are developing? That's right, the container, the vessel. And if you are identified with the, with the vessel, with the false self, as you pursue your spirituality, if you practice sexual magic and start developing the solar bodies, but don't work on elimination of the ego, You create a Hasnamusan. You become a Hasnamus. One who is developing simultaneously as an angel and a demon. One with a dual center of gravity, a split personality, if you will. But it's not so much a split personality as it is two personalities. Because your innermost being has its own equivalent of a personality. It's not a personality like our personality, but it has an equivalency to that. It has an individual, it has individuality, in other words. And that individuality will be trying to express itself alongside the dark personality of the false self, the egos, that are likewise becoming empowered. The result of this, now there are many, many levels, different versions of this possibility. But we're going to share with you uh, a quote To begin with, the twice born who does not reduce his lunar ego to cosmic dust converts himself into an abortion of the cosmic mother. He becomes a Marut, and there are thousands of types of Maruts. Certain Oriental sects and some Muslim tribes commit the lamentable error of rendering cult to those families of Maruts. Every Marut, every Hasnamus has in fact two personalities, one white and another black, one solar and another lunar. The, the innermost, the being dressed with the solar electronic bodies, is the white personality of the Hasnamus. And the, pro, and the pluralized I dressed with the protoplasmic lunar bodies, is the Hasnamus's black personality. Therefore, these Maruts have a double center of gravity.
There are a couple comments here. We're going to take a, a brief pause and uh, get to a, a couple comments. Dylan says, ever notice that devil is, li is lived, spelled backwards? We must awaken. And Azazel says, an awakening in evil. We're going to share the link now. Um, if anybody wants to jump on and um, come on and share your thoughts. We hope you enjoyed last week's uh, live stream. We certainly did. It was nice to have a guest on. And we feel the, uh, the discussion was, and the information shared was, was most valuable. And today's topic is, in part, a follow-up to that. And... <clears throat> The reason is because we we find it so what's the word lamentable sad unfortunate to run into so-called spiritual people who are so clearly developing as Hasnamus. And you know them. You've met them. You can tell who is on that path. For example, you share with them the information about white Tantra. And they immediately freak out. They have a knee-jerk reaction. They have an anaphylactic reaction to the teaching. And they're convinced that the way they do Tantra is the right way. Indulging in orgasm. Well, that's even worse than practicing white tantra with you know without eliminating egos <laughs> they're just out now just becoming demons but then there are many people who practice tantra in many different ways and semen retention and so on and so forth. they think that that's all there is to it For example, being hermetically sealed is enough. Well, if you're hermetically sealed and you're sealing in all that energy, and you're developing and awakening, creating those solar bodies, it's just, but you're not eliminating your lunar bodies, then it's exactly you're 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 going, you're developing as that as a Hasnamos. It seems we have a guest who has uh, decided to join us. But Jax, your uh, it seems your microphone is muted. So so anyway, Jax, you'll have to unmute your microphone on your end if you want to uh, join. There you go. That's that's it. How are you today? I'm okay. Good. Welcome. 
we're going to um, move on here to describe some of the qualities of the Hasna Mus according to Gurdjieff. By the way, Gurdjieff is where uh, we encountered the term for the first time. Uh, we were reading uh, Beelzebub's tales to his grandson, and Gurdjieff, you know, he uses the term extensively in that book. Oh. Um, because, but the, the difficulty with Gurdjieff is, and what, and well, we'll get, we'll get, we'll get to the, we'll get to the punchline a little bit later, but, um, because Beelzebub's, Beelzebub's tales to his grandson is written in the first person from the perspective of an extraterrestrial, for lack of a better word, because Beelzebub belongs to a different humanity from a different planet. And so he comes and he visits Earth and he spends a great deal of time with this humanity. And it is... The book is him describing his experiences with our humanity to his grandson, who likewise is, a, is an extraterrestrial. So it's a very interesting esoteric book because it isn't, it's a profoundly esoteric book. But it is looking at humanity from the perspective of an enlightened humanity and how an enlightened, someone from an enlightened humanity might perceive us and how they might describe us, <laughs> you know, to, to someone else from, from their humanity. So it's a very, very, um, you know, people like to talk about, you know, thought experiments and so on and so forth, but this is a, it's a very profound exercise because it allows us to step outside the shoes of our limited perspective, our limited point of view, because we're in it, right? It's hard to be objective when you're in it. Right. Um, so that's where I first encountered the term Hasna Mus. And, and uh, Gurdjieff very often, uh, or Beelzebub, the character in, in that book, very often describes uh, people who he met people that he interacted with, so on as, well, that's a, that person's a right candidate to become a Hasnamusen, right? <laughs> it's like, it's clearly, he's a, he's a fine Hasnamus. Right? <laughs> so, because it's, in any case, um, Gurdjieff has a description of some of the qualities of Hasnamus. Number one here, uh, every kind of depravity uh, conscious as well as unconscious. So, you know, when we think about that, that's we can think about every every sin under, under the sun or every desire and the desire to indulge desire, right? So we have lust, greed, gluttony, so on and so forth. So you can use your imagination. You know what de de depravity is in general. So the Hasna Mus uh, is... Is is yeah. So is involved in one way, shape, or form in depravity, right? And mm -hmm. sees nothing wrong with it. 
Number two here, the feeling of self-satisfaction from leading others astray. Now, this is tricky because on the surface, this implies that a hasamus gets off on corrupting others. But that's not what this is saying. Because that's a demon, right? That's a that's an outright demon. That's what they do, right? That's a that's a vampire. That's a right. They they get off on outright corrupting and and leading people onto the left hand path. It's been a, a while. Oh, sorry. I... Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jax. No, you're fine. I I thought I just thought you wanted me to comment on it. Go ahead. Go ahead. I um I mean I don't really have much to say. I it's been a while since I've um looked into it, so I'm just kind of just recapping. Just as a student. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, there is more than one way to lead someone astray. Right? And you can lead someone astray unconsciously. In other words, you might believe that you're leading them in the right way, in the right path. And, and you might gain a great deal of satisfaction from leading them in the way that you think is the correct way. Because it's your way, right? It's my truth. And because it's my truth, and you believe it so hardly and fervently, and you convince others to start living in accordance with your truth, that gives you a great feeling of self-satisfaction. Yeah, I, I see that. You're leading others astray, but you don't see yourself as leading them astray because you yourself don't see yourself as having been led astray. You don't see yourself on the wrong path. You, you see yourself on the right path. Right. And in fact, this is the irony of, of why Hastamusan is the, 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 and why this is so similar. It's a, it's a nuanced subtlety, but by why it's so similar to an out and out demon, because that part of the Hastamus, remember it's split personality. It's like a Gollum and Smeagol, right? So uh, from Lord of the Rings. So Smeagol is really innocent and wants to serve the master, right? And he wants to do good, right? That's Smeagol. He wants to serve Frodo. And he's, you know, he's, he's cute. And he's, you know, he, he was once not much, not unlike a hobbit, as Frodo <laughs> says, right? But, but Gollum, right, is the precious. And Gollum is the one who's, you know, he's, he's always in the background. And he's always scheming and he's always uh, conniving. And, and Gollum doesn't let Smeagol be Smeagol, right? He, he will let Smeagol think, right, that he's, that he's free, but he's not. <laughs> and so this is the, 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 the tricky part for the Hasnamus is this, is this dual personality. Now, mind you, most 
demons they don't think what they're doing is wrong either because to them every angel is a demon so but that's a that's a different sort of perspective is this a specific deity that you're speaking of no 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 oh if if you want to talk about a specific deity we would we could bring up uh andramalek andramalek is one of the prime evils is one of the the arch demons of hell and andramalek is a hasnamus meaning the demon andramalek contains the awakened master of a of an angel but that that master that awakened master is trapped inside of the demon Andramalek. And because of that, he can't, he can't advance. And Andramalek, the demon, won't allow him to advance. So he's trapped in hell. But he's a fully, but he's a, he's a, he's a self-realized master. Then he's trapped inside of an, a demon. There's nothing he can do about it. Because that's how... That's the plight of the Hasnamus, is that once you develop that split uh, personality and you allow, if you, don't, if you don't realize it in time and you awaken too much, you empower that black aspect, that, that, that demon side of you, and that that will not that can't that will not permit you to continue developing your innermost your your true self because it is it's always easier to fall than it is to climb and you just look look at the world like look at how many people are practicing manifesting their desires that's black magic they're practicing black magic they think that they're spiritual look how many people are practicing tantra in the wrong way look how many people pre and teach and write books if you go to a new age bookstore how many books can you find on the bookshelves that are teaching black magic Manifesting your desires, uh, you know, living the life that you want, five uh, D ascension, and you know, as- ascending and all this nonsense. That's shelf, true. you know, true. shelf after shelf after shelf after shelf after shelf, right? Yeah, and you see it so much in like TV and pop culture too. It's crazy. And that's that's number two. That's right here. That's number two. Because all those authors have a feeling of self-satisfaction and they're leading everybody astray. They're leading others astray. But look, but look at them. They, they and you, you say like they go on talk shows and they go on Oprah and, and everything else professing that they have all the answers. Uh, this is another uh, number three that Gurdjieff lists here. The irresistible inclination to destroy the existence of other breathing creatures. This okay. is a this has to be a Hastamus who's very far gone, far along 
the line of development. So remember, we talk about different levels of this, right? So right. this is someone who uh, basically gets off on death. And it's and it's just the thrill of the 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 extinction of life, right? For would in whatever way. This is not this is not to be confused with like you know a sport hunter or whatever, or a fisherman or whatever. This is someone who this is this is like um, the ar the archetype of this is presented to us in Gladiator in Commodus. Um, if you've seen the film, Commodus is, you know, the, the son of the emperor, the, the, who, uh, who murders his father and becomes emperor. Oh, huh. and, um, and he's the one that, uh, orders 180 days of games in the Colosseum, which basically means 180 days of bloodshed and blood sport and slaughter in the, uh, in the Colosseum. And out of jealousy or just like he wanted to kind of do his own thing and he was young and foolish. No, he wants to win the approval of, uh, of the people. Oh man. What better way to do that than 180, 180 days of games. And it's, it's explicitly said in the film when the, uh, when the two senators sit down and, uh, and one one shows the flyer to the other one, and the flyer is you know the flyer is a, says Colosseum Violencia right, and shows two gladiators going at it. That's the, that's the flyer, and uh, it says games, 180 days of games, and the other senator goes, Senator Gracchus goes, oh, he's cleverer than I thought, and the first senator says, what, you you think the people are going to be seduced by that, and Gracchus says. I think he knows what Rome is. Rome is the mob. Conjure magic for them, right? And they'll and they'll follow you, right? Take away their freedom, but still they war. He says the bleeding heart of Rome is not the marble of the Senate, it's the sand of the Colosseum. He'll bring them death, and they will love him for it. That's as that's as best as we can remember the quote from the film. But it's explicitly said in the film. That's why he he orders 180 days of games because that's what the people people love. That right? This, at this time, at this time in Rome's history, we're talking about you know the the downward slide of Rome, like to the, like the downward slide of today. People want their Circus Maximus. People want their games in the Colosseum. People want their entertainments and their blood sports. Right. So keep in mind that the irresistible inclination to destroy the existence of other breathing creatures. So it's an irresistible inclination to destroy, destroy existence, right? That's, that's blood sport. That's bloodlust. Now in Rome, they had the Colosseum. Today, the closest thing we have it in, in the West in live entertainment is we have uh, MMA, right? Mixed martial arts. And we have uh, boxing. But that's not to the death. 
right? So it's it's a blood sport. You get to watch, you know, mostly men beat the living stuffing out of each other. But we have another activity, which is bought, which is far and away the most profitable of all entertainments in the modern world. Can you guess what it is? Uh, Anybody in the chat? Do you guys know what the most profitable uh, form of entertainment is in the world today? Like which format? Yeah. Well, no, you know, just, just you know, there's different, there's different kinds of entertainment, right? There's music, there's theater, there's movies, there's, uh, there's video games. So, like, which, which do you think is the most popular and most profitable? Uh, I want to say like the music industry, like with entertainment, yeah, the entertainment industry. Far and away, the most profitable entertainment form of entertainment in the modern world is video games. That's my second guess. It's a video game industry. It's, it's, uh, yeah, Benjamin was right. Yeah, it's video games. Now. Video games that much. Most video games, most video games, AAA titles now on console, right? We want to talk about console games like Xbox and PlayStation. Um, with and now like the the graphics on these things are uh, oh no no we don't want to do that here we want to do this okay here here's just some um, some screenshots right these are uh, first-person, third-person shooters, right? Oh, the most uplifting. Okay, it's all death. It's all killing. It's like these games are all... It's all It's all killing. That's it, what these games are, for the most part. What? And, they're, and, and because of the, the, the graphics nowadays, right? It's yeah. All, so... So yeah, as Azil says, yeah, the ultra realistic, ultra immersive. Okay, so um, whoops, that's not what we wanted. Yes, okay. So we come back to this: the irresistible inclination to destroy the existence of other breathing creatures. <clears throat> Violent video games is a way. For individuals to satisfy this urge, especially the ultra-violent, ultra-realistic video games. Um, yeah, Light Foreman says, I knew it, LOL, right? Okay. Um, it's And it's interactive, right? In, even so much that the controllers actually have triggers on them. So when you're shooting, you, you feel like you're pulling a trigger. There are... There are there are clever ways in which the ego has devised, the Black Lodge has devised ways for people to satisfy this inclination without going through the fuss and muss of actual physical violence 
Because remember, everything out there is already a delusion. It's already an illusion. So why don't we create a video game and just put the illusion on a computer and then the person can have the same satisfaction or a similar level of satisfaction, perhaps. So it's that, so that feeling of destruction, the feeling of taking life, the satisfaction, the and that and the 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 way the Gurdjieff, you know, expressed it here, or the way that or the way that Glorian is expressing it here, the irresistible inclination to destroy. Like many, many, many video games are about this. No matter how you slice it, right? So, uh, not all video games, but the vast majority of AAA titles, this falls into place. This 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 comes into place. Uh, hang on, Mugaboo had a couple comments here. Let's get to them. One thing I have come to realize: whether going up or going down on Jacob's ladder, Divine Mother supports you. Each path has its rewards. You can enjoy now and cry later, or cry now and enjoy later. And he also says, I don't know why I don't enjoy these games like I used to. I could spend hours playing these games before. Now one hour drains me. It's soul sucking, I believe. We, I'll be honest with you. Um, when it comes to these types of games, I was... It was... Be like when you're younger, you're also more tempted... It's a little easier to like, you know, grab your attention. There's that. But also when I was younger, when I was really young, when video games weren't even a thing, video games were just coming onto the scene. You had to go to an arcade, right? And put and pump quarters into a machine. And even then the graphics were, you know, dodgy at best, right? And the first 3D graphics were, I mean, it was, you know, it was not like it is today. And they had like um, the uh, the rating system and stuff wasn't in place yet. So um, uh, game developers like Nintendo, to this day, Nintendo doesn't allow blood in any of its first party titles. So if you buy a Nintendo console, it's like something like 80 to 90% of the games don't even allow blood or, or that kind of that levels of physical violence, graphic violence. So, because they know who their audience is. Right. And they have, they have a value. They have kind of values as a, as a corporate entity, right. They're there. And their brand values is, you know, family fun, you know, good for kids, you know, whatever. Yeah. Like, like the plumber can jump around on turtles and use turtle shells as weapons, right? But and 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 save Princess Peach, but you're not going to see Mario running around with a rocket launcher and doing headshots <laughs> with with a sniper rifle. That's just not going to happen. You're not you're never going to get that game <laughs> from Nintendo. Um but for many many people that's that's their form of entertainment and they and there's that irresistible inclination. It's a very animal primal uh desire to dominate and destroy and snuff out um and but there are other genres there are other forms of media 
that attempt to provide the same satisfaction. For example, there's a genre of um, underground movie making uh, called snuff films. Oh, these no. are these are movies that, exactly as the title describes, they they are they are films of actual murders, actual killings. I've heard about that. It's messed up. That's it's a real thing. It's a real thing. Now, you as an individual can meditate on how much difference is there really between when you're talking about a film because it's a, it's a mediation, right? It's a it's it's a two-dimensional capture and mediation of an event. Somebody told me that Twitter like has that stuff too. It's there's it's it's all over the dark web. Like the dark web really you know traffics in this stuff. The dark web also traffics in pedophilia and and all sorts of things that cuz snuff films are illegal. It's illegal to it's illegal to to trade in these sorts of films for obvious reasons because it's you know it, it's actually depicting actual deaths it's not simulated but the point that we're trying to make is how different is it really to your subconscious mind a simulated death versus a real death in other words, if people didn't tell you it was a real death, if you didn't know, it, if, you, if you watched a snuff film and nobody told you it was a snuff film, they just showed you a film where someone dies, you wouldn't know that it was a real death versus a simulated death. So to the subconscious mind, a lot of these video games, it's like participating in a snuff film, but actually being the one pulling the trigger. This is, this is what's being satisfied in the subconscious mind. Um, Light Foreman chimes in and says, so would say a game like Skyrim is bad for my soul, even if I try to make good choices in the game. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Okay. And this is, a, and before we answer that, uh, Mugaboo has another comment that is relevant. Diablo, World of Warcraft, Starcraft, Battlefield, Call of Duty. I can't stand them anymore. Maybe I'm just getting old. <laughs> okay. I was that same way. I feel you there. Okay. So here's our perspective on it. Okay. We always uh, gravitated. I'm going to say I, I, like some of you, always gravitated to um, those games where the enemies or the adversaries that I fought were monsters or demons or uh, abominations of nature. They were clearly not human, right? So I liked role-playing games. So when Light Foreman talks about Skyrim or Mugaboo talks about Diablo, uh, I never played World of Warcraft. I, I played it. I tried it. I hated it. And I got out of it. Because something in me knew that this was a life sink and that this was going to suck way too much time and money and everything out of my life. So I played a game called Guild Wars, actually, uh, around that time. But um, I was always uncomfortable. And the game that really turned me off 
of uh of this was um was call of duty modern warfare of playing a game a first person shooter where you're shooting real people and there was something about the game that was just so realistic and it was so hyper realistic it just it just was like this isn't fun this is like traumatic this is like and it's like i don't want to i don't want to role play a uh, a heartless soulless you know mercenary black ops whatever going around shooting people i don't know anything about those people and it's like for no reason yeah yeah exactly for no reason however uh a game like diablo where every single and first of all diablo is not a first person game it's a it's a game where your character is like small on the screen and everything you fight is very cartoony it's a very cartoonish type of game it's not photorealistic in any way shape or form and all of the enemies that you fight or the vast majority of enemies that you fight are either undead so they're skeletons zombies uh they're 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 or they're demons of various kind of demons and so I always gravitated to games like that because there was something archetypally correct about them. And of course, it was because I knew deep down that that's the hero the hero's journey is to eliminate ego. And egos are demons. And so a game like Diablo is is um you know or fighting monsters or you know and and recovering the treasure and saving the kingdom, right? Yeah, it's like Life form and say, you know, right, be the hero. And that's why you have that in fairy tales where you have the hero going to, or uh, Perseus who descends into the labyrinth to kill uh, Medusa, or Theseus that descends into the labyrinth to kill the Minotaur. And again, the Minotaur is what? The Minotaur is a Hasnamus, half man, half beast, half demon, half, half creature. He's a demi human, right? He's got the head of a bull. And, uh, and he lives in the labyrinth, right? The labyrinth of our subconscious mind. That's why in Dungeons and Dragons, we always descend into the dungeon. That's the underworld. That's, that's right in, in um, Hero's uh, Journey. Um, that's right in the Hero's Journey. That's the, uh, the visible world and the, the, the known world and the unknown world, right? We have to descend into the unknown world, into the subconscious mind, into the, into the kingdom of death, into the... the, into the the lands of Mordor, and we have to perform some great feat of heroism to cleanse the kingdom of the great evil. This is all archetypal, and it's all the alm of life. It's all psychological or revolutionary psychology. It's all the elimination of our egos and the cleansing of our subconscious mind of the demons that reside in there. So that's why, you know, I was always, uh, uh, and, and as Azil says, <laughs> Diablo 4 is coming up. Uh, he doesn't know if he's going to play. It's very tempting. Uh, you know, we have been playing Diablo since Diablo 1. And uh, honestly, I don't know if I'm going to pick it up either because it seems like now it's gone to it's going to a more MMO style open world uh huge overworld like something like 120 different dungeons and you know it's it's and it's starting to feel like just like a lot of work um, very time sorry jacks very time consuming 
it's very time consuming and it's also it's also energy consuming um it's it, it, it requires like if you've ever observed yourself playing a video game and you say to yourself wow if only i could have this level of focus and concentration while i meditate yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> right it's it's clearly i feel that there's like something about there's something about the video game um that is so uh hypnotic because you can sit down in front of a video game and start playing and you'll look up at the clock and three hours has passed do you think you like each game like might be having certain frequencies put into it that make us like focus more on it could be a possibility okay yes uh yes now it's not and it's not so hidden right do you guys know what a pachenko machine is uh, Can anybody uh, tell me what a Pachenko machine is? Somebody I'll use you... Google real quick. <laughs> That's okay. No, no, no. I can I can Google it for you. Actually, uh, not that it's going to. Uh... Here, let's see if we can. Ah, it's terrible, terrible, terrible. Okay, um, I tried to possibly show you a. Anyway, I can't, there's, there's a movie named Pachenko, so it doesn't work. Okay. A Pachenko machine is Japanese. It's Japanese pinball, but it's a gambling. It's a kind of gambling in Japan. It's a, it's a, it's a Japanese pinball machine. And if you, uh, if you Google, um, let's see if we can Google, uh, Japan Pachenko machine. Okay, here we go. So let's share this. Can you guys see this all right? So, um, yeah. So you see, there's a Pachenko parlor. You see, everybody's sitting down in a chair in front of their Pachenko machine. And this is an example of a Pachenko machine. But there are, so these are all Pachenko machines. And I'm trying, okay, this is here. Okay, so how this works is there are buttons on it, um, not unlike a, um, a slot machine in, in Las Vegas, and these um, ball bearings, like so little, little tiny pinballs, right? But they're, they're ball bearings fall down, and there's all these little pegs, right? So it's like random how they fall, but you can manipulate how they fall using the different buttons. And, uh, and then see, there's this dial here as well. So there's it's interactive, in other words. And it's more interactive than a uh, typical slot machine. Now, this is not the interesting part of the Pachenko machine or, or the, uh, the addictive part. The addictive part are the sounds. 
that this thing makes. Okay, the sounds that a machine like this makes oh, no. <laughs> are completely and totally and utterly hypnotic. The lights and the movement and the interactivity and that, yeah, that all plays into it, but it's the sounds that this thing makes. Now, the equivalent of this in video game form, the, the, the video game, it's, it's, I, you can barely call it a video game, okay? But the game that perfected this in digital form, uh, you all know it and you've probably all played it. It's called Candy Crush. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, when you play Candy Crush, okay, tell me that the sounds, that the way that game feels, it's all about the sounds that it makes. It's like you, you get a little taste with Candy Crush, but just a taste of what a Pachenko machine is. But that's what that's what Candy Crush is, a digital like Pachenko machine. And all of these, all of these, um, all of these mobile games. If you've ever played any of these so-called free-to-play mobile games, Azazel, the ones <laughs> where you have to buy gems and stuff, like, but you can hey. you can play. They're they're all designed around this philosophy of being of having the there's some kind of they build into it a kind of co compulsive aspect to it where you keep playing, you keep playing, you keep playing. That's a Pachenko machine. The Japanese invented it. And they perfected it. There are people who will go into a, um, a Japanese Pachenko parlor and they will gamble away um, an entire month's salary in a few hours. And it's like, but in Japan, it's, it's, um, it's not even a taboo thing. It's just part of their culture. Like they're everywhere. That's messed up. They're, they're everywhere in Japan. Um, That's scary that things like that actually exist. Well, you know that in Japan, just about everything is addictive. Right there's there's a guy writing writing a writes this article right Japan's gaming obsession. Um, I mean let's face it the video games that come out of Japan are addictive too, but so too are um, anime. Yeah. Many people are addicted to anime, and then there's uh, Japanese junk food, Japanese uh, snack food. I don't know if you've ever had something called pocky. Oh yeah. You know what pocky is? It's completely addictive. You have one pocky, you eat the box. It's just it's just the way it is. There's so many things in Japan that's addictive, it's not even funny. I don't think any of the junk food is actually healthy, though. I think I feel like it's like worse than American food. Oh yes, oh yeah. Well, is it worse? Yeah, no. It's equal. Is at the very least, it's equally bad. At the very least, it's equally bad. But some of this stuff is, like. Um, but no, but all of this is an answer to your question, Jax. Is it, are there frequencies involved that are hypnotic? And the answer is yes, absolutely. 
and as Azul says here, I'm familiar with the Jemmy sound. Yeah. Um, now, are you are you aware, Azazil, that if you've ever tried any Diablo clones, Diablo-like games, and if you've ever wondered why they don't give you the same level of satisfaction, it is 100% because of the sound design. Diablo from day one, Blizzard put so much time and effort into the sound design of Diablo that every strike, every hit, every, you know, falling, uh, uh, you know, gold piece on the ground, every single interaction with that game, the sound design is completely perfect. Yeah, Path of Exile, but the sound design doesn't come close. It's not, it doesn't have the same visceral feeling. We've also, I've, I've played Path of Exile as well. Uh, I didn't like, Path of Exile is one of those life sync games. You have to devote your life to it in order to get anything out of it. Um, and the random number generation in Path of Exile is even more unforgiving than Diablo. But but anyway, that's a, that's a side issue. Um, the, uh, but a lot of these games that, because let's face it, a lot of people play these games and they have absolutely no awareness whatsoever about the alm of life and elimination of egos. They, they will never make the connection, whether it's Diablo or Path of Exile or any of these games, any of these role-playing games, they will never make the archetypal connection between shadow work, work on oneself, and the playing of the game and, and, and eliminating demons and liberating the kingdom. Just like, just like most people have no idea that that's what fairy tales is about or that's what the hero's journey is about. Most people have no concept of any of this stuff. So they, they play these games because they're we're just ridiculously addicted to them. They get hopelessly addicted and they play obsessive compulsively, partly because of the sound design and the way in which that sound design in, in a combination with the interactivity and with the visuals creates this compelling, satisfying, compulsive need to continue so the little the little dopamine hits probably is what um what we could talk about from a neurological perspective is anyone familiar with borderlands 3 i um i remember making a few comments to people about the cover of it how it's like very similar to like the um jesus painting when he was like holding like well it was like a floating heart but still and they made the same thing but it was like holding a weapon instead and then also, like, just, like, the sounds they made and the way the characters talked, it was, like, very, like, it was, there was something, like, eye-catching about it, and I could definitely, like, grab, like, attention with that. I just, I wanted to give it, as like, a broad example. Um, well, unfortunately... That's not a very, it's not a very good uh, image. It's too small. Let's see if we can find a better one. Um, this one? Yes. No. Yeah, but they're, they're too small. I'm trying to find one that I can make big on the screen, but... Uh... 
Well, anyway. Right. So ironically, right. he's not holding up the right number of fingers for it to be. Yeah, but there it is. He's got instead of a heart, he has a grenade. And um, he's got this, like you said, this weapon. Yeah. Yeah, that's the Borderlands 3 uh, cover. Yeah. Um, that's a first person shooter. It's what they call a looter shooter. So it's like Diablo, but it's but it's first person. But you're not killing demons. You're just killing others. In a, it's a post-apocalyptic story, right? So you're just yeah. fighting for, I don't know, whatever. Um, anyway, that's that's it's like uh, bounty hunting or something. Uh, you, yeah, you're running missions. It's it's you know it's a, it's a post-apocalyptic world, so it's like Mad Max. That's the concept. So there are there are factions. There's gangs, and there's there's resources, and then you basically. Yeah, you're like a mercenary. So you you take on missions, you take on uh contracts, and then you go and you you uh you you play those out. Okay, let's let's go let's go on here on the list. Um so um yeah, and as Azil said, uh yes, he has played Borderlands, he stopped uh by their third edition, and Mugaboo said, I think this is what makes these games quite addictive. You are a hero. You defeat Diablo after a lot of strife and struggle. Um, what makes them addictive, there's a number of different things, but what makes something truly addictive is the person playing it. So there's a difference between compulsive and addictive. And even then, someone has to have an inherently compulsive personality to play something compulsively, like obsessive compulsively, or so-called become addicted to it. The sounds, the game design, there's a lot of things that come into it that, that make it so. But ultimately, Mugaboo, when you said earlier that you used to play all these games and you can't seem to play them anymore, that maybe you're getting older, um, a lot of it has to do with the fact that addiction, compulsion and addiction comes from lack of knowing yourself and lack of worth inside of yourself. So the more you know yourself and the more work you do on yourself, the more energy that you expend on improving yourself, or serving others, the more you recognize that the real game is in here and in here. And the real heroism is out there. That is, how can we help others? That's the, how can we be a hero in life? And the more the reason why video games are so popular is like you said, it allows people to be a hero and that that's kind of like, you know, filling the void of, of being a hero because most people are not a hero in their life. Yeah, there it is. Uh, Light Foreman says, I like that. Yes. That's where I'm at where you, where you look at this game and it feels like that's a lot of work for nothing 
I have nothing to gain from that game, which is one of the reasons why at this point I have no plans on playing Diablo 4 because I have nothing to gain from Diablo 4. I just have a lot of energy and effort and time to, to pump into it and get absolutely nothing out of it and help absolutely no one in the process. So I would much rather work on, you know, writing, writing a, a book and, and, and publishing it. I'd much rather work on videos, much rather work on doing these live streams, speaking to you, uh, wonderful people, sharing, being productive, being, being productive, being useful, being helpful. Right. And I mean, there's, there's, there's a satisfaction that no video game can fulfill once you have a taste once you have a taste of what you're really here to do there's there's nothing else that can substitute that anymore there just isn't and yeah video games for me anyway were useful for various different reasons um and you know, we, I, I've got a blog article that I wrote about video games ascending to high art. And those, they're few and far between, don't get me wrong, but there are games and we have had experiences with games that have been life-changing, life-altering experiences. And because they are a form of art, they are an art form. And like any art form, they can be they can be elevated to the status of high art divinely inspired because remember everybody including the programmers of these games and the writers and the designers of these games they too have an innermost and many of those people they were born to design video games they feel it in their blood in their bones that i was here to create these virtual experiences so let us not be surprised when lofty themes and archetypes and mythological universal truths and all sorts of uh, uh, facets of high art sort of trickle down and, 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 and find their way into some of these games. Now, not, again, not all games. I have a question. Go ahead. So, I think it's really weird that the most popular video games are these independent horror games that people are coming out with left and right. Isn't that really strange? Now, horror... Horror is an interesting um, topic because I, for one, have absolutely no interest and have never had any interest in any horror like films or and even games and you know horror even though the even though diablo started out as a dark horror fantasy it's a very dark um you know but having said that it's it's not the horror what we, when we talk horror, it's it's not the demonic themes or exorcisms or 
any of that aspect which turns me off it's the gore it's the goriness it's the violence it's the the, the you know the people who like horror because they go for the gore they like the goriness they like the jump scares you know uh look with a demon of fear right with epilepsy right epilepsy and jump scares don't mix okay my nervous system and what i deal with and uh you know the that and and the jump scares and that aspect of horror do not mix so i that's one thing that turned me off of these movies right away is that i live with a hypersensitive let's call it, let's call a spade a spade i live with a demon of fear and so i am so susceptible to that and i feel jump scares like like i can't even describe how um how um um visceral i experience those so that i'm not into that right and that's not that's not entertaining to me and it's not uh in any way shape or form helpful to me uh to be constantly you know uh, uh exposing myself to that um and and a lot of people they see a light form and says you know i can relate but you see a lot of people they're like for them they're like adrenaline junkies the ones who want to feel afraid they want to put themselves in these death-defying situations or these horror situations or jump scares or whatever because because immediately after they have the jump scares they get a rush of adrenaline right and a rush of dopamine and a, a god only knows a rush of god only knows what else gets stimulated in them and I'm so stories of some of them sorry i'm just intrigued by the stories of some of them this is the this is the interesting thing about horror is that some of them actually deal with like the whole genre the whole subgenre is there to explore uh hell and and demons and demonic possession and and being haunted by right like it's there's something universally archetypal about that genre there's nothing inherently wrong with the genre this is this is something that needs to be explored in mythological terms and storytelling terms in here in the hero's journey right the the descent into hell and to conquer the demon is right it's it's just that the way in which they are produced the way in which they get funded and financed is that they have to be they have to check all the boxes they have to they have to be saleable to the masses oh, and the masses yeah. are not watching horror for their archetypal truths and universal truths that's not why they're watching horror right when the typical person watches alien and we mean the first alien where in the end it's just sigourney weaver 
and the alien. Mono y mano, but it's not even mono. It's fe femo a, a alien, right? It's woman versus alien. Mm -hmm. And it's um and yeah, it's Ripley versus the alien. And most people will not see that it's an archetypal expression of the divine feminine force facing off against an ego and eradicating it from the physical vessel, which is the spaceship. Ripley is the divine mother. And what is the what is her only weapon that she has in the end against the alien? Is a flamethrower. Divine Mother Devi Kundalini Shakti, the fires of Kundalini. Ripley is the Divine Mother in Alien. She's the only one who has her shit together and knows what's going on. At every step of the way in that movie, she is the voice of reason. She is the voice of knowledge, of logic, of wisdom. She is the one that says, no, you can't bring that thing onto the ship. <laughs> And she is the one that that um, has to fight off the the android, the android that loses its mind, and tries to kill her. That's the mechanical. That's the mechanicity of eight uh, of nature that tries to overwhelm, and kill our divine mother and turn her from the uh, the the virgin into the whore. That's why um, um, uh, Ripley uh, fights with Cain, and Cain is named Cain after Cain and Abel in the Bible. So, and in the end, she only has a flamethrower to, to, uh, to face off with the alien. And then the omnipotent voice of mother, right? On the loudspeaker telling her how much time that she has ticking down. Mother nature. Because we only have a limited amount of time to eliminate our egos. And time is running out. Time for this humanity is running out. We are in the Kali Yuga. So mother is ticking down, warning, you now have five minutes to reach minimum safe distance, right? And Ripley's and Ripley's shouting, damn you, mother, right? She's trying to get to the escape pod. And if you've seen the movie, it's like the, the tension and energy and everything is there. And then she has to go back and get the cat, right? Let's not forget that. So this, but that's horror, right? Alien is horror. Alien is one of my favorite movies. But one of the reasons why it's one of my favorite movies is because I know all this in it. I see all this, the archetypal truths, the universal truths in, in Alien. And because it's not overly gory and it's not, it's not a gore porn, right? It's not, Alien is not about the, the violence. It's not about the, 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 it's about the archetypal nature of being stalked by this mechanical biomechanical invincible adversary that lurks in the shadows this is the ego the alien the xenomorph is the ego and it is born from one of us right it's born from the chest right of one of the from the heart of one of the crew there is it is we could do an entire live stream just about alien but most people don't know this. A lot of people have very strong feelings for that movie, but they don't know why. 
They just think it's because it's really cool and Ripley's cool and this is cool and that's cool. Like so much sci-fi and fantasy. The masses, the muggles, right? They're asleep. The zombies are asleep. They're taking it in on that superficial level. Just like all those people who read the Bible literally and they take in their religion on a superficial level. The depth is there and they feel the depth within themselves. But their own ego mind, their own rational mind, prevents them from penetrating into the depth of what they're watching or what they're reading or what they're hearing. So they, get, they, they remain trapped on the surface like a, like a stone being skipped across the surface of the pond. Um, let's back up here because there are a number of, uh, uh, people have been, okay, let's go back. Um, number of comments that we need to get to <clears throat> awakened reflection said, I stopped uh, world of Warcraft a while back, <clears throat> but I wouldn't say it was for nothing. I met and helped lots of people who needed support through the game. Lots of depressed people playing. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's good for you. You needed to play it. You had something to accomplish through that game and you're right. A lot of really depressed people, a lot of people uh, found a second life and meaning and purpose in World of Warcraft because they had very little in, in this life. But in that life, they can be heroic, they could be popular, they could be looked up to, admired, right? Uh, they had this weapon or that armor set or you know what have you because they went on this raid and that raid. Um, and all it was, was a commitment of time and energy. And they could accomplish tremendous things. Um, so it was never, it was never, that was never our calling to do that in that, on that platform. There's a uh, South Park episode about that, I think. Go ahead. I said there's a South Park episode about that, about World of Warcraft. I remember. The Make Love, Not Warcraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, uh, I, I watched that. I can't remember all the details, but I do remember because those. Yeah, I think the, I think the creators of South Park were very into the game as well. That's why they were able to. Like the entire, the entire episode takes place in World of Warcraft, doesn't it? Um, running yeah. It's about. Yeah. yeah. Light form and oh, sorry. Awaken says a few of them I still have contact with, and we became good friends. So. Nothing is inherently bad and off limits in and of itself because it is what it is. We're in the Kali Yuga. This humanity is in hell. None of us should be surprised that we are surrounded by depravity all around us and that the vast majority of video games uh, are a certain way and that the vast majority of people who play those games end up getting addicted to them and having a net negative effect on them. Right, we're in the, we're in hell. We're in the Kali Yuga of this humanity. It's it's this is not uh, to be. This is not a surprise, or shouldn't surprise anybody. However, that's not to say that some good can't be extracted through the process of going through hell. I mean, that's the very hero's journey. We all have to go to hell. We all have to descend into hell in our own way. And just like last week. When we uh, had our uh, guest on talking about uh, uh, prison. And he goes to prison. And he had to go to prison himself 
to discover his vocation, which is now counseling and helping prisoners and those who are incarcerated, helping them develop meditation skills and self-observation skills and, and teaching them about gnosis and teaching them about like he wouldn't, he would never would have arrived never would have earned the trust of the people running that system had he not gone through the system himself. So there, there's many, many different paths to our destiny and there's many, many paths to the truth. And very often the paths which lead us to the truth have to go through an entire uh, uh, hell of lies and half-truths and, and deception in order for us to go through the dark wood, right? Follow the breadcrumb trail through the dark wood into the light. That's Hansel and Gretel. And that's, oh my. that's the mana from heaven, right? Every day we find a breadcrumb in our life, that little serendipity, which reminds us that our divine mother is looking out for us. And she placed this little breadcrumb on our path to remind us, hey, you're on the right path. Just keep following the breadcrumbs. And so for us, right, some of those breadcrumbs have included video games. And that's why we have that article, video games ascending to higher art. Uh, for that very reason. Because in our own experience, um, some of those breadcrumbs have been video games. Just not World of Warcraft in our, in our case. But that doesn't mean that that means that that game is in that has has nothing of value to uh, to share to, to, with others and that there's nothing of value that we can get from it. Just like, just like, um, just like we were talking about horror movies and alien, like, you know, who would have thought that you can get, knowledge of the alm of life and the elimination of egos and a beautiful fairy tale of the divine feminine force eradicating the ego from the uh from the physical vessel in a in a in a space opera horror film right that basically invented space opera horror and hr geiger or giger depending on how you uh pronounce his name the artist who designed the xenomorph, his artwork is all this horrific biomechanical hellscapes. His, 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 his art was all about, he, he painted his subconscious mind. He expressed the dark side, like, like Edgar Allan Poe did in poetry. Like so many have, like, say, you know what? Like, uh, I'm sick and tired of all these, these pop artists with all of their colorful, like, like, like the, the Technicolor soup cans, for example. What the hell? That's not Technicolor soup cans. That's not saying anything about anybody. Or anything of value to anyone. This this modern uh, uh, is it look ego masturbation. So instead, H.R. Geiger said, "No, no, I'm going to show people their ego. I'm going to show them what what's what's hidden from them right now." And it wasn't until Ridley Scott came along 
and took one of his designs and brought it to life on screen that that people comprehended what Geiger, what Giger was trying to communicate in his art. And then they saw one come to life on screen. And it was an alien. Do you realize that Alien almost got an X rating in the United States? It almost got rated X because the people in the rating system, they said, no, 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 this is this is too terrifying. This is too disturbing to be shown to anybody under the age of 18. Because you know how R works in the United States. It's restricted to people under 18 unless they're accompanied by an adult. But an X rating says that, no, you can't, you can't see it at all if you're if you're underaged and uh, accompanied by an adult or not like you uh, like a young person can't go into a uh, a pornography film in the uh, United States if it's rated X you can't get in there even if you're accompanied by an adult you can't get in there because that's the law so th- so that's uh, alien almost got an X rating because of how so-called disturbing it was and scary and nowadays they show Alien at seven o'clock at night on standard cable TV, unedited. Wow. Right? Yeah, like Alien a, today is considered like PG thirteen or something yeah. like that, right? But when it came out, but it was simply, it was because of the archetypal purity of the film, and how Ridley Scott brought Giger's xenomorph to life because you barely see the xenomorph in the first alien film if you add up the screen time that the xenomorph is actually on screen it adds up to like less than a couple minutes it is the way in which that film is crafted by a master craftsman of film ridley scott is one of the greats He's entirely underrated, but he captured, but he's so good at capturing the essence and the purity of, of truth through that medium. And so what people were witnessing, they didn't consciously know this, but sub unconsciously they knew what they were witnessing was they were going through hell. They were, they were vicariously experiencing hell itself. And they were witnessing the Divine Mother eradicating an ego. But that process was so terrifying, the confrontation of that, the going through that. And you know the ego cannot stand to, to allow this process to take place, which is why it would want to restrict it. And government bureaucrats, the people who do uh, rating agencies, what are they if, if not governed by fear, if not governed by ego. That's what government is, right? It's all ego, it's all control. So of course they would give it an X rating because subconsciously they were being told, the Black Lodge is like, no, 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 no. We can't, we have to absolutely limit how many people can see this. We can't allow people to see this. What if they were to get it? What if they were to figure out what it's about? But of course... Unfortunately, this humanity is far too asleep to be able to figure these things out. 
Uh, all right. Azazel says, some sounds in horror, be it games or movies, are something we react strongly to. But it has to be a perfect representation of the sounds of hell. Um, do you guys know about ASMR? Have you ever it's heard that term before? Have you heard that term before? I have. So do you know do you know what it do you know what it is? Oh, man, I forgot. It's been so long. Okay. So <clears throat> here's here's the definition according to uh, Google. Um, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. Here we go. Autonomous sensory meridian response or ASMR is a tingling sensation that usually begins on the scalp and moves down the back of the neck and upper spine. A pleasant form of parathesia. It has been compared with auditory tactile syn synesthesia and may overlap with friction. So these are, talk about jargon, right? But there's people who do these, these videos on YouTube and, um, <clears throat> and what they do is they will make sounds which are uh, pleasing and that they make the, they give you goose pimples, right? Uh, goose skin. Let's see if we can. Um, it's interesting that they'd be mixed in with like popping pimples and stuff. Okay, so we can't play much of this, right? Because we're going to get dinged with copyright. But you can do your own research, go onto YouTube, and 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 you will see these things. Now, <clears throat> in a very similar way that Azazel is talking about here, sounds of in horror, they're the sounds that make the hair stand up on the back of your neck, but not because they're pleasing, but it's the same phenomenon of ASMR. It's the, it's the visceral nature of the sound, which, which causes a, a, a visceral uh, reaction in the, in the central nervous system. So there are pleasing sounds and people who react a certain way they to these pleasing sounds, but then there are also the the sounds that that make you cringe, that make the, the the hair stand up on the back of your neck, and that those are like the bone crunching sounds and the and and the you know dripping blood or or whatever you know they come up with. Um, and yeah, so we react viscerally to those, and again, it's all about sound design and so there's but but asmr is very um it's another primal sort of you know it's a primal sort of lower level it's it's a it's a it's a fetishized sound uh really um anyway that's uh, another conversation um, as I says, luckily they don't know these too well. Um, so most things are still watchable or playable. Light Foreman, uh, commented, wow, that's so interesting. He was commenting about our, our, um, unveiling of, uh, alien. 
as I said, like harsh whispering sounds, voices that sound like they come from everywhere and nowhere. Now, again, yeah. Okay, so the blood-curdling screams. And yes, the the those whispering sounds in the dark that that like you say they come from everywhere and nowhere they come from within you but without they surround you you're surrounded um again that's related directly to asmr that the, the two things are related they're very closely related because the whispers in the dark that make you terrified those same whispers can make you feel comfortable and relaxed and embraced by the darkness, right? Because remember, the demons, like in, in horror movies, the demons often come to you as demons. But in reality, demons often come to you as te uh, the temptress, the, seduc the seductress, or the, seduc the seducer. So the classic example of that is... Uh, Dracula, vampire movies. So there's a good deal of ASMR going on in an interview with a vampire. And we haven't watched the Twilight series. We can only assume because the voice, the vampire will often use his voice and the modulation of his voice and how he speaks and how he whispers to seduce his prey and you know lull her into a kind of hypnosis because it is a hypnotic i mean it is that's what a vampire does a vampire hypnotizes his prey and eventually she she you know she falls asleep or, or whatever okay more um Mugaboo says i watched the exorcist in 1979 when i was 13 years old i was horrified for weeks because I knew exorcisms are real. My mother took me to an exorcism when I was six years old. I will always remember that. So the exorcism is one of those <clears throat> movies that they took an exorcism and they, they, they Hollywoodized it. They dialed it up to 11 and they made it ridiculous and fantastical to, to, um, discredit real exorcisms in the mind of the general public because if you make something over the top and ridiculous then people will no longer uh recognize the truth of it they will they will be they will be so hypnotized by the over the top superficiality that the depth the truth and depth that at its heart will be lost. Okay, Lux Gusto says, is it possible to no longer receive breadcrumbs from the Divine Mother, such as when one goes through spiritual darkness? Um, we are always receiving guidance, even in the dark. In the the darker it is, and the more disconnected we feel, the more we are being helped and assisted and guided. It doesn't feel that way because we're in hell. We're in the depths of hell. But we're being guided and led down there for a reason. 
And so to pay attention is all the more important because what we have, the gift, the breadcrumb that we have there to find is not, is, is the very darkness, is the very pain and suffering, is the very loneliness and aloneness that we are feeling and what's causing that and why we are feeling that. This is, um, we have a, we did a live stream called Waiting in the Dark. It was in season one. Um, and so, but we know what you're getting at. These are the, it's very difficult. It's very hard. That's when we have to really, truly observe ourselves and be patient and relax and trust and have faith because the breadcrumbs are not these obvious, overt, serendipitous, uplifting, you know, typical, usual ways in which we experience that. If you know how we mean, if you've, so if you've experienced the breadcrumbs and the breadcrumb trail, then we typically know what we refer to as serendipity and synchronicity and being in the flow state and, you know, these little miracles. And we have all these wonderful expressions for that. Unfortunately, that is our own bias. And that is our own preference for mercy. Okay. But love is severity and mercy. That's love is tough love. So, so, so a lot of the breadcrumbs that we receive in life, they, they're moldy. They're sour, it's sourdough or it's burnt crust or it's moldy bread. It's, it's not pleasant. It's unpleasant. Tough love is, is unpleasant. What child enjoys being scolded what child enjoys having to face and learn the lessons of life what child goes willingly down into the dark basement to face their demons but that's part of the hero's journey and it's the essential and most important part Love is severity and mercy in balanced measure applied unconditionally with infinite wisdom. That's our Divine Mother. And so the breadcrumb trail that she leads for us is through the dark wood. And sometimes when we feel most alone. So it's the poem Footprints. If you know the poem Footprints, when the, the man is looking back on his life and he sees the footprints in the sand and there's always a pair of footprints next to him except when things are really bad in his life, then there's only one pair of footprints. And he says to God, how come you were always by my side and then when things got really dark and I needed you the most, there's only one pair of footprints. And God says, because my child, it's in those times that I carried you. Benjamin says, whoa, that's interesting. Okay, yeah, so we covered that. Uh, as Azil says, he can't stand ASMR. And yes, he, he, um, I see these before I go to sleep. 
uh, embracing, but spine shivering. So again, we're talking about those, those whispers in the dark, I guess. Um, Light Foreman said, I heard this quote from a movie on grit in 2016. This girl says, everyone is always trying to find their own peace. Maybe if everyone help each other find their own peace, they can find, they can find it. I ju it just makes you think, I feel like all my people's voice crying out in the street. I can hear it in the distance. Uh, they want help. And uh, they, and that's why people like us suffer because we're being called to go help and we don't know what to do. Okay. So if we get the essence of that quote. It's one of the great uh, ways in which those who are truly walking the spiritual path uh, suffers when, uh, sorry, um, when we hear the calling of those crying out in pain and suffering, and we feel it. And if you're and if you're an empath, you feel it viscerally. You can feel their their pain, their suffering. <clears throat> um, and you know that you're here to help people find peace, to help people deal with their suffering. But you don't know what to do. You don't know how you can help them. Like, for example, maybe now you turn on the TV and you see all those people suffering in the Ukraine, and you're like, well, what can I do about it? And this is a... But you really want to do something about it. But you don't know what you can do. You know what to do. Or you know you're here to do something, but you don't know what exactly, specifically what it is. And this can haunt, haunt us for years, actually. And we can go through life looking and searching, desperately searching for what to do. And the answer just doesn't reveal itself to us. The key is uh, patience. Because everything happens for a reason. And one of the important lessons that we have to accept is that we can't save everyone. We can't. It's just not possible. It's not only not possible, it's not practical. And it's not preferable. Not everyone deserves to be saved. That's a harsh truth. But not everyone can be saved. And this is something, and this is practical. This is not just, this is not some religious, spiritual, dogmatic uh, superiority complex. Talk to a psychologist. Talk to a doctor. Talk to someone, an ER surgeon. Talk to someone who's, who's been a doctor in, in wartime. Talk to someone who has dedicated their lives to helping the poor, who works in a soup kitchen, or who works with... Um, 
severely uh, addicted individuals, someone like Gabor Mate, who works with the, like the worst of the worst in Vancouver. I mean, when I say the worst of the worst, the worst of the worst addicts, not the worst people, but just people who are so addicted to like, they got addicted to fentanyl or whatever they got addicted to. And now they're, now they're, they're hardcore, you know, pumping heroin into their arm every day. And they're in, and their, their, their arm, it looks like a pin cushion for God's sakes. What, or you talk to a veterinarian, it doesn't matter. You speak to anybody in any of these fields and you realize that all of these professionals, they can't, you cannot be a physician without that level of detachment. You can't be a good ER surgeon without the level of detachment. If you're convinced that you can save everybody that comes into your ER, you will burn out and quit within the first six to 18 months. If you can make it six months, even that would be incredible. But you'll never make it as a doctor. You'll never make it as a psychologist. You'll never make it as a lawyer. You'll never make it in any of these professions. As a veterinarian, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, uh, a, uh, uh, a nurse working on the maternity ward, right? A midwife. Any midwife who thinks that she can bring every baby into the world always without any complication, without ever losing the mother or the child, she will not survive as a midwife. She won't. She can't. Because when the first occasion comes, when either mother or baby or both die, she will be so completely devastated that midwife will. She will be shattered. Her entire universe will collapse and implode in on herself. It's impractical and it is impossible. So when we say not everybody can be saved, this is not some kind of dogmatic religious superiority complex or, or, or statement of judgment. No. It is just a fact of life. It is a it is reality. It is objective truth. It is the way it is. It is what it is. Right? That's true. Not everyone can be saved. And we just got to help who we can. No. No. We help those we must. There's a difference. You help the ones who are there in front of you, who show up, and you surrender. You let go to your innermost helper, your innermost Lord and Master. Right? The ones you can help are the ones you are told to help and the ones that you are allowed to help. And even they, even they, 
may not respond unless they want to be helped. They might not respond to your overture. Lord knows we've gone through that enough times in our life. We can help a lot of people. We can help a lot of people. But we can't force anybody to accept our help. And we can't make the world come and watch our live streams. We can't do that. And if they did, a lot of them would... would what are you talking? What do you talk about demi humans? What do you talk about Hastamusan? What do you talk about half demons, half what? You're crazy. The vast majority of people on this planet are simply not capable of processing this information. We can help many, 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 many people. But in our effort, to do that, we would miss the ones that we were here to help. We'll end up spreading ourselves too thin and wasting our time and energy on those who can't be helped, who won't accept our help. But we could help them. It's not seeing the forest for the trees. It's robbing Peter to pay Paul. It's, you know, a, 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 hand, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And all these cliches, they all, they all apply. So the ones that we are helping are everyone who's on this live stream. And if you pay it forward, and you follow the guidance of your innermost being, then you will, you will be able to help whoever crosses your path, who is meant to cross your path because you have something to give them and they have something to give you. It's an eye-opening perspective that we've, light form, and we've, we've shared this in the past. You have to appreciate how this eye-opening perspective was given to us. When we were taken in front of the Ascended Masters of the White Lodge. And if you can imagine, picture in your mind, little Anakin Skywalker sitting in front of the Jedi Council, it felt like that. And there we were, little puny little tiny little us, puny little tiny little me, but it wasn't me, it was my innermost. But it was, so it was us there in front of the, the masters of the White Lodge and they were larger than life. And one leaned down and they all spoke, but only one spoke, if that makes any sense, because it's the perfect multiple unity. It's the Logos, the ascended masters of the Logos and he said, now listen very carefully. You don't have to save everyone. 
And when you are told that in that way, in that space, by those beings, you you come out of that experience with a perspective that now it dwarfs anything that you know anything any perspective that i had had up until that point but it was so important a lesson that i just couldn't get it through my head otherwise it didn't seem to stick and so desperate times calls for desperate measures i guess and the master said okay <laughs> let's let's make it really clear to him and they did and from that moment forward um you know this whole question of you know watching and observing the world suffer and having to sit back and just not do anything about it is because well because of just it just is what it is we have to do what we have to do we have to do what we have to do we have to be and there is there is a rhyme and reason to everything but just not necessarily known to our rational mind and so we have to be patient we have to trust we have to have faith and moment by moment by moment we have to observe and pay attention who can i help here and now And hopefully you agree with that too. <laughs> okay. Um, we're barely uh, four uh, steps into our uh, discussion here of uh, Gurdjieff talking about. We got off on a tangent. Um, number four, the Hasnamus, right? The demi-human is the urge to become free from the necessity of actualizing the being efforts demanded by nature uh, these are the activities and actions of self-observation and self-remembering and also the other demands of divine nature and nature itself so the so practicing pranayama the expulsion of negative energies and sending them down into the earth and there's a whole series of the uh what's called as the being park talk duty or the um the duties related to the self-actualization, the self-actualization of the being, and um, the Hasnamus sees all of this as a kind of invasion of their freedom, um, and so they want to be free of that duty. And again, many people in the so-called spiritual community, they want to be free to do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want. And it's all about I, me, 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 me. And if it's about me, 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 I, 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 I. And they believe that they, that I, is capable of ascending. That somehow that me and that I and their desires, and that when they're having so-called spiritual sexuality and they're having orgasms and all the rest of it, that this is bringing them closer to God. Well, that's because they're feeling the urge to be free of the necessity 
of actualizing uh, the actual being efforts um, demanded by nature. Because awakening and self-realization is a metaphysical scientific process. It's not a question of belief. It's not a question of desire. And there is no... Uh, you, you can't game the system. You can't cheat. There's no silver bullets. There's no magic pills. There's no magic beans that grow the beanstalk. There's, that doesn't exist. Uh, as Azul says, it reminds me of the experience where I wondered what the point was. That kind of absolution is hard to explain. It is hard to explain, and most of the time when we receive that kind of absolution, it's for our benefit. It's for our benefit, so we can then go on and continue and then be a good example. And then we don't normally have to explain. But in this day and age, we do have to explain because people are so asleep. Um, they can't see the example when it's right in front of their face. They can't see the forest for the trees, unfortunately. You're welcome, Light Foreman. It was it's our it's our it's always our privilege and our pleasure. So, number five, um, the attempt by every kind of artificiality to conceal from others what, in their opinion, are one's physical defects. So, this is according to Gurdjieff one of the attributes of the has, has, ha, Hasnamus, or the Hasnamusen. <clears throat> so an example of this might be uh, individuals who go to great lengths to perform plastic surgery. Um, Without naming any names, it is clear that there are certain uh, pop artists who have lived in, during our lifetimes, we're all aware of them, who had the ability, had the power, had the talent to reach literally hundreds of millions of people. And yet, they went to great lengths to transform their face or their body in some way because of some physical deformity or some uh, physical defect, which they couldn't live with. So this is, in some way, the Hasnamus, the the externalization of self-perfection. So whereas the being has no attachment to the physical body and the being knows that the, <clears throat> the self-perfection that matters is internal, psychological perfection. The Hasnamus with its split personality, the split center of gravity, the 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 pluralized i the demon half of them us usurps that intuitive knowing of self-perfection 
and externalizes it because that's what the that's what the ego does, right? That's what the demon does. Everything is externalized into the delusion, into Maya, illusion, into hell, into my truth. So now it becomes a matter of physical perfection. So the being knows that the imperfection, the pluralized I, needs to be, is the defect. But because that pluralized I exists as its own personality, it will take that intuitive knowing and twist it and corrupt it and filter it and find some uh, imperfection and apply it there instead. Now, a great deal of time and energy and effort and consciousness obsession is pumped into that physical defect. Into the so-called self-perfection. This takes on many, many, many forms. Including uh, body sculpting, body building, losing weight, being, being, having the washboard abs. And yes, in extreme cases, the plastic surgery. And then after the plastic surgery, right? There's, then there's always something new. The plastic surgery never ends. You know people who've gone through plastic surgery, you know it never ends for them. There's always something else and something else and something else and something else. Then a little tuck here and a little pull there and a little this and a little that. Now we're just going to do this and then we're just going to do that and so on and so on and so on. Number six. The calm self-contentment in the use of what is not personally deserved. The calm self-contentment in the use of what is not personally deserved. This is uh, a good example of this. We can think of individuals in the limelight, in the spotlight. Uh, Elon Musk. Kevin O'Leary, if, you, if you're familiar with Kevin O'Leary, uh, he's one of the dragons. He's, he's on Shark Tank. He's one of the investors on Shark Tank, and he's also on the Dragon's Den here in Canada. He was also named, he was also the spokesperson for FTX. But we can talk Elon Musk as well. The calm self-contentment in the use of what is not personally deserved. In the case of Elon Musk, it's his reputation. It's is his 
his fandom, his notoriety as the real life Tony Stark, this his persona, his public persona. That's the that's the phrase that we're looking for. Public persona. Elon Musk has a public persona that some people have euphemistically referred to him as Electric Jesus. Uh, they, they say that satirically as well because they can see through his, his lies and his, uh, his smokescreen. But Elon Musk uses with such calm self-contentment as all narcissists do, he uses that persona, that public face which is in no way, shape, or form deserved. He's a compulsive liar. And if you actually look into his history, same with Kevin O'Leary. But they, they use their public persona <clears throat> with complete self-satisfaction and self-contentment. This is, uh, in smaller scale examples, you know people at work or in your life who, who uh, gain something, maybe they, they uh, cheat on an exam or they, they swindle their way into a position at work, which they don't deserve, they don't deserve to be there, but they, they walk around like, like, you know, like they're the cock of the walk, they, they like they walk on water because they were they were given this uh, this um, this promotion, this appointment, this raise, whatever, this project. They were named project leader, not because they deserved it, but maybe it was because of nepotism. Maybe they were the boss's nephew or the boss's son or daughter. And so they were named to this position or project leader or whatever. They didn't earn their way. You know what? Here's a here's another really good example of this. Justin Trudeau. Okay? Justin Trudeau is a perfect example of calm self-contentment in the use of what is not personally deserved. His name, his position as Prime Minister of Canada. He has no, he has no reason to be there. He has no qualifications. He has no intelligence, no wisdom, no experience. He has nothing which qualifies him to be there other than the fact that he's Pierre Elliott Trudeau's son and maybe he's maybe he's not Pierre Elliott Trudeau's son <laughs> maybe he's Fidel Castro's son but it, but regardless um <clears throat> he has Trudeau on his passport and his birth certificate so so it is what it is and uh and uh he's charming and he knows how to play the game But he'll go to Davos and he'll go and sit with these other world leaders and everything else with a calm self-contentment that he has a right to be there and that he's going to wield this power and he's going to wield this authority and look at what he wields here in Canada. He's a tyrant. He's, he froze people's bank accounts and, and all sorts of nonsense and he wields that power as if he has a personal right to do so. And he doesn't. Number seven, uh, the last on Gurdjieff's list describing the qualities of the Hasna Musa. Um, 
the striving to be not what one is. Trying to be something that you're not. And again, Trudeau is a perfect example. Elon Musk, perfect example. Elon Musk is trying to be Tony Stark. He's not Tony Stark. He's trying to be a great inventor, a great entrepreneur. He's not. He's none of those things. He isn't. He simply isn't. He's a tyrant, is what he is. And he's a liar. He's a compulsive liar. He's a narcissist, is what he is. Um, and there's many, many cases of this. But I, we don't have to... You can find your own examples of that. You know, someone trying to be something that they're not. Um, a little uh, note here. It says, you know, although the origin of the term is uncertain and uh, and has an in- interesting meanings when analyzed in Arabic, Hebrew, etc., in Sanskrit, we find hastamus can be derived from ha, meaning sorrow or dejection and pain, asna, meaning voracious eating and consuming, or, or a stone, and mus, which is a mouse or a thief. So hasnamus, uh, suffering and a voracious consumption and a, and a mouse, a thief. Mouse as a pest, as a parasite. So, this list of seven, this in Gurdjieff's description, seven uh, qualities. Rhetorical question. How many of them apply to you? We'll freely answer for for myself. Just just answering for myself now. Every kind of depravity, conscious as well as unconscious, check. Being honest. Being honest, check. Uh, the feeling of self-satisfaction from leading others astray. Uh, no. The irresistible inclination to destroy the existence of other breathing creatures. In the past, yes, check. And our discussion about video games, right? Number four, the urge to become free from the necessity of actualizing the being efforts demanded by nature. Yeah, check. The attempt by every kind of artificiality to conceal from others what is their opinion, one's physical defects, check. The calm self-contentment in the use of what is not personally deserved uh, in the past, not not actually not even really in the past. The striving to be to striving to be not what one is, check. I got five out of the seven. I don't know how you scored, but I got five out of the seven. I'm just being honest. So let's scroll up here. What Glorianne has to say about the Hasnamusen. It's a term used by Gurdjieff in reference to a person with a divided consciousness. Part of it is free and natural, and part is trapped in the ego. In synthesis, everyone 
who has ego is a Hasnamus. Although there are many variations and kinds of Hasnamus, there are four basic types. Mortal, the common person, those who have an astral body, those with the solar bodies created, and fallen angels. And these are all described in detail by Samael Anbayor in his lecture, The Master Key. And then that comes back to that quote that we read at the beginning about Marut. And by the way, this is the uh, the, the link that we shared in the uh, in the description. Uh, comes to this page. You can. So, in other words, we are all Hasnamusin to one degree or another. And in our case, because we openly talk about you know epilepsy and and uh, and you know we we are possessed by a demon, and make no mistake, that's not just when we have a seizure. Right, our demon is around all the time, all the time. Makes us obs obsess over things, and it, it, it's the demon of fear. But this. Um, yeah, but number four, as Azil says, number four is my biggest, biggest check. Well, have you ever been trying to meditate and been actually booted out of meditation or, or tried to do pranayama and you have absolutely no energy? You have, you have, you have nothing to work with. It's being like literally drained and sucked out of you. Normally, under normal circumstances, we just call it laziness, right? Oh, I just don't feel like meditating right now. I don't feel like doing this right now. I don't feel like doing mantras or this or that, the other thing, okay? But the urge to be, want to be free of the necessity of actually of doing those things, right? As Azul says, yeah, many times. And we all have. We all face that. And then there's there are those days when we're like, oh, God, you know, it's like... And then so the belief... When you run into people as, no, I don't have to do that. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. I'm God already. We're all God already. Well, that's the ultimate expression of the urge to become free of the necessity of actualizing the being efforts demanded by nature. But this number five is also big that, you know, I suffer from as well. Right, and it's it's um, now I don't attempt to, you know, by every kind of artificiality to conceal from others, but you know, exercise a lot and you know, do this and do that, other things to try to 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 deal with, you know, some of my genetic inheritance, <laughs> if you will, um, related to body composition. Let's just let's just say that, right? And I can and and you know I can convince myself I can rationalize. Oh, but you know we have to have a, a healthy vessel and you know per, you know perfect the vessel, perfect the temple. The body is a temple and all this kind of stuff. But really, I'm just really honest. It just comes down to vanity, right? And trying to conceal from others uh, this this so-called physical defect. So, yeah, there's, there's, and then every kind of depravity, conscious as well as unconscious. I mean, you know, dreams are, dreams reveal much. 
and you don't don't ignore your dreams don't write them off we are the demi humans by the way all of us all of us because if we were true human beings you would have no reason to be here i would have no reason to be here and i would have no reason to be sharing this with all of you We would be Buddhas. We would be masters. We would be angels if we were true human beings. We are the demi-humans. And as Benjamin says in the book of James, also warns about double-mindedness. Every cartoon that we watched growing up had the characters with the little devil and the little angel on our shoulders, whispering in our ear. This is what most of the students of Gurdjieff got wrong when it came to reading Gurdjieff, is that they assumed that Gurdjieff was talking about somebody else. They assumed that that Gurdjieff was railing on, on somebody else, but, but Gurdjieff was talking about them. Benjamin says, if everyone is a Hasnamus, then there will be two paths ahead of us, those that will strive to be a true human and those that will devolve into animals. Correct. And we say as much in our article on... Um, <clears throat> yeah, on the Kali Yuga. And we talked about this many times, and we've shown you this infographic uh, many times. Where is it? Oh, gosh. It's a long article, obviously. There it is. This info infographic. And there's devolution. It's right here. We're in the Kali Yuga. Uh, the development of Hastamusan is all part of that devolutionary tract. Azazel says, yes, it's also like the parable when he asks which of the two sons uh, did his father's will. Yeah, it's actually, and it's Cain and Abel. I mean, it's it's the it's it's the eternal conflict, being versus ego. Light Foreman says. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, "Quote: Whom shall I send, and who will go for us?" Then I said, "Here am I. Send me." And he said, "Go and tell the, tell the, this uh, tell this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand." Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered,
Well, maybe there's more coming there. So as Azazel says, there are also those who say yes to God, but do not do his will. Uh, these are like, these are the Pharisees in the Bible. Um, and the Nirvanis. Uh, that's a, those who are on the spiral path. He says that's an, a prime example of number two on the list. The feeling of self-satisfaction from leading others astray. So, got to go, okay. Um, so, Yeah, yeah. So the the light that uh, the passage that uh, light shared, yes. Uh, which, okay, here. Um, this is, um, this is the voice of the Lord. Okay. So without the big, without the greater context, I'm not familiar with this passage. I don't know what book this is from. I don't know who the speaker is. Um, I don't know what gospel it's from or what, what book for the Bible it's from. I, without context, I can't comment. Um, there's not enough information here to pass judgment on this, uh, on this passage. Not, not, from, not from where we are. Because the Lord would not... Th this is... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, it's uh, it's there's not enough being there's not enough shared in this passage for for us to uh, come to a determination on what is actually happening. I don't know why you couldn't see it. Okay, he says, uh, Lightformin says, I don't know why you couldn't see it. It's also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, "Whom shall I send? And who will go for us?" Then I said, "Here am I. Send me." And he said, go and tell the, okay, so you're repeating the same thing. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not, do not perceive. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he's answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitants. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away. 
Yeah. So again, this is like, this is, okay. And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But ye a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming as a ter terebinth tree or as an oak. Okay, so the issue here, the, the, the question here is not how this can be interpreted. My, my goal here is not uh, uh, to share how something can be misinterpreted or, or abused or abused. That's every single quote in the Bible. That's every scripture. That's every sacred symbol can be misapplied and misappropriated and, and abused. So what what is the what is the uh, the scripture actually saying? It has nothing to do with number two, because there are no passages in the Bible that are leading others astray. So without context, without a broader context then trying to understand what the yeah but see see that's the thing though is that isaiah was a prophet and whose stump remains when it is cut down so the holy seed shall be its stump. Yeah, okay. This is this is a, a a prophecy of the end times. Right. Um, okay. So now we know why you shared this, but it wasn't until. We got to the end. Okay, so the key here is uh, verse thirteen. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth or terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. This is the key to this passage. If you leave out this passage, the passage is, it's incomprehensible. <laughs> because this is, a, this is a prophecy of the end times. But the book of Revelations, the end times, the Kaliuga, is a macrocosmic expression of what happens in the microcosm, inside the individual. So the forsaken places in the land, so the, the one-tenth that remains, is like we were talking about, the 3% awakened consciousness. And the 97% ego and the 3% awakened consciousness, that's the stump. That's the seed that we have to work with that's consumed um, as the oak to in order to rebuild, in order to repopulate. 
But that's exactly what's going to happen to this humanity and the next humanity. The next humanity is going to be born from the best seeds, from the stump which remains of this humanity. But the rest is going to be wiped out. And so, so, so the men are going to be, the men are going to be gone, right? But that men, what's what's a man, right? A man, manas, a man is a human being. It's the true human. But the true human tri triunity, as we, we began at the beginning, so in the Hasnamus, right, it's, it's about uh, we have to work with what free consciousness we have. We have to work with our humanity, our innermost being. That's what we have to work with. But we have to eliminate, we have to destroy, we have to cut down the rest of the tree. If, and, and if all we have left is the, the stump, that's okay because the stump has its roots. And the roots of the tree of life are in heaven. Well, depending on your point of view, you can say the roots of the tree of life are in hell. Fair enough. But realistically, the roots of the tree of life are in heaven. The tree of life is inverted when we look at it. Because the branches of the tree of life, especially in this uh, in this uh, allegory, are the branches that, you know, the... the, the um, Remember, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, you die. So the fruit grows on the branches. So the roots of the tree are in heaven. And it's inverted. So for the new tree to grow, you have to cut down the existing tree. That's where you end up with the stump. The stump and the roots. And that's the seed for the new tree to grow. So the tree that you cut down, that's the demon. Those are the egos. You have to cut those out of your life. Or you have to do what the natives used to do in North America, which is controlled burning. And you would burn, literally, whole chunks of the forest. You'd burn them around. But you'd leave these islands of forest. You'd create this groomed savanna for the wildlife and everything. And so you could have places of hunting and so on. And, and you know, so this is... It's like you. It's like weeding out the garden, or 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 any other type of uh, process by which you have to eradicate those aspects which are undesirable in order for that which we need to grow in the garden to nourish us to 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 grow. <clears throat> and in us, our essence, the buddhata. The monad is a spark, is a seed, is an essence. It's just a seed. And around us is all of this weeds, right? All of this, this is the, you know, the what makes us Hasnamusan is all of our egos, are the pluralized I, our demon, right? Are the adversary. And in order for the seed to grow, we have to reclaim the soil that's currently being taken up by all the weeds. So you, when you read the book of Revelations, when you read the book of Isaiah, and they're talking about the end of the world, they're talking about repopulation of the earth, you're talking about yourself in microcosm. The end of the world, the end of yourself. We must die psychologically. And eradicate. We have to take the xenomorph and blast it out of the airlock. 
before we run out of time. Before we run out of time, because the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking in our own lives. The clock is ticking in the number of lives that we have. And the clock is ticking for this humanity because we are in the Kali Yuga. Benjamin says, if I may add to the quote that light has shared, this is regarding the parable of the weeds where the Lord sowed seeds. Still, the enemy, the Black Lodge, sowed bad seeds and the servants' angels wanted to pluck out the bad seeds. But the Lord said to wait until everything has grown when the weed will be separated from the wheat. Yeah. It's very similar to what we were saying just a moment ago. Um, to separate the wheat from the chaff. The Lord sowed the seeds. Still, the enemy, the Black Lodge, right, sowed bad seeds, and the servants' angels mm -hmm. wanted to pluck out the bad seeds. But the Lord said, wait until everything has grown when the weed will be separated from, or when the um, the weed will be separated from the wheat, or the, the, I think in the Bible, it's the wheat, this is the passage, the wheat being separated from the chaff. Now, the question is why? Why? Why would the Lord say, let everything grow, and then we will have the great, culling right we will we will come with our with our sickle right and we will cut the wheat down with the sickle and in the process we will cut down the chaff and there will be a separation from the uh, the wheat from the chaff why wouldn't you pluck the seeds out at the beginning Because then, if you did that, you wouldn't know the difference between good and evil. You wouldn't know the difference between wheat from the chaff. You would no longer have knowledge of good and evil. You would not be as the gods. Because that's from Genesis. Lo, if you, the, the serpent says, no, you will not die. You will be as the gods and you will know good from evil. You will know both good and evil if you eat of the fruit of knowledge. Because the good seeds will get destroyed. Well, well maybe. But, um, but no, if you just pluck the bad seeds, just the bad seeds, just assuming you could, just assuming you could pluck just the bad seeds and leave the good seeds, then you would have utopia, right? But we are here in hell. To learn the difference, to know the difference, to develop discernment, to know ourselves, and to know good and evil as the gods do. Every angel was once a demon. Every angel was once a demon. If you don't plant the bad seeds, right? What? How can you have the Tao? What? You know? How can you have the Tao if you if if it's just you don't have the, you don't have both sides? 
How then what's the point? Honestly, what's the point? What's the point of coming down here if this is going to be a reflection of heaven? What what's what's the point? There is no point. What's the point of playing chess if both sides are white? Or there's only white pieces, there's there are no black pieces. What's the point of playing chess? What's the point in the existence of the chessboard? Azazel says, another inspiring passage is the one in the Monty Python when they bring out the holy hand grenade of Antioch. <laughs> uh, yes, it's... They read, uh, they read from the Book of Armaments. Yes. First thou shalt pull out the holy pin, then thou shalt count to three. Three is the number of the counting, and the number thou shalt count is three. Four thou shalt not count, Neither count thou two, un, unless thou immediately proceed to three. Five is right out. Then, having <laughs> reached the number three, having been the third number of the counting, thou shalt then lobbeth thy holy hand grenade at thou foe who, having been deemed naughty in my sight, shall snuff it. Amen. Um, Benjamin says, is it just the aware people experiencing hell right now? Because it seems that the unconscious people are having a party. No, they're not having a party. They're not having a party. They're in hell. They're in hell. Because everybody that's having a party right now, the minute that they stop partying, a mere moments later, they crash. They come off of their high. They come off of their dopamine rush, their alcohol rush, their sex rush, and then they suffer. They suffer tremendously. And what do they do? They suffer until they can get back onto their high again. They can get back onto their dopamine rush. They can get back onto their drugs, onto their sex, onto their distractions, onto their entertainment, onto whatever it is that they're partying with. But that's unsustainable. You can't sustain that. You can't be up all the time. So eventually you crash. And it's in those moments of crashing that they that they they realize I'm in hell. I gotta get out of this again. And so they're then they're looking for the next fix. Light says, My friend told me. Uh, we started at the bottom in this life so we could better help raise humanity, uh, ascend humanity. Um, we start at the bottom because it's the only way to climb a mountain. And We have always had this philosophy that many normies don't understand. They, they just can't grasp it. But for us, it's always been self-evident, always, that uh, if I focus my attention on helping you get to the top of the mountain, and if I do, if I'm true and faithful to that task, to that commitment, 
that I am going to see you get to the top of the mountain. If I stay true to that, then when I succeed in that task and you make it to the top of the mountain, I will be one handhold away from the top of the mountain myself. That's always been my philosophy. Is that I'm I'm going to get to the top of the mountain by making sure others get to the top of the mountain. Because I'm so committed to that and I'm so willing to suffer and sacrifice and give up my own comfort and security to help you reach the top of the mountain. When I succeed, because I will, I'll be one handhold, I'll be one handhold away, Ben. And anybody that I get to the top of the mountain, if I hold my hand up, do you think they're not going to be willing to reach down and grab it and pull me up? That last step? Yeah, you know how many people don't understand that analogy? You know, how many, you know how many times I've told people that analogy and they don't get it? They can't see it. They can't feel it. They can't, they can't, they don't register. They just don't connect with it. They, they can't understand it. It simply does not compute. And for me, I can't compute things any other way. Because I cannot fathom, as Azul says, there'll be coffee at least. <laughs> One would hope. One would hope. Um, but for me, it'll have to be decaf anyway. So, um, I've never been able to fathom stepping on other people, stepping on other people's, uh, uh, heads to, to get ahead, to make it up the mountain. I've always felt that cooperation is more powerful than competition. And that, and that to really succeed, to really accomplish anything it it requires enabling others and assisting others empowering others to accomplish great things and it's inverting the pyramid really um but that's that's what having an atlas complex is all about well, that's what atlas is all about you can call it an atlas complex. You can call it the atlas archetype. You can call it the path of the bodhisattva. It doesn't matter what you call it. It just is. It's just this what we're here to do. <clears throat> we're here to be fishers of men and women. And yeah, it's it's it just it, it is what it is. And like I say, I mean, like your friend said, Light, I'm down here with all of you. I'm no better than any of you. I check five of the seven boxes of Hasna Musun, right? I'm no better than anybody here. I'm here because together we can climb that mountain. 
and we can go through that together. And I'm not walking on water. I'm not here healing the sick. I'm not doing any of that stuff. I'm here suffering. I'm here facing every kind of depravity, conscious as well as unconscious. <laughs> and I and I'm and I'm and all of that in the world is a reflection of what's inside of me. I'm here experiencing and living in microcosm what the world is experiencing in macrocosm. How else can I possibly know? How how else could I possibly know how to help people and how to help the world? If I didn't first know and work and focus on helping myself in microcosm and face the demon in microcosm in order to know how to help others face their demon because that demon that rules the world everybody experiences it in microcosm and that's the level on which we can help one another because nobody can change the world we can only change people and we can't change them we can only help them change if they want to change benjamin says like when a jew was asked how is he so rich he answered when I'm uh, of us gets paid when one of us gets paid <clears throat> all five of us get paid Western society is focused on self-prosperity there is a um, now without opening up a whole can of worms around capitalism and the merits of um, individual achievement and the meritocracy and so on and so forth. Um, this, this story is really a kind of expression of profit sharing. some of the most successful companies <clears throat> in history have been those whose compensation with their employees was connected directly to the success of the company and some companies have in their constitutions in their employment agreements that uh, executives executive pay is capped at a certain multiple of of employment pay but really the most equitable uh form of capitalism is where the employees own the company but the employees of the company are the shareholders of the company now the problem with that from a practical point of view is that often company needs capital and investors and so on and so forth to come into the picture so you can have outside investors as well who also own the company or own a portion of the company but the notion that the employees have a vested interest they have a stake in the company and the better the company does the better everyone does that is a practical expression of what benjamin is sharing with us here unfortunately uh 
very, very, very few companies actually see it that way and are actually structured that way. And the Kali Yuga in this day and age, the, uh, the wealth gap is astronomical. Between the ultra-rich and everybody else, and they're uh, seeking to create the new serfdom, the new uh, serf class, uh, and return to basically what amounted to uh, what was in, um, in the Dark Ages in Europe following the collapse of the Roman Empire, where institutionalized serfdom, institutionalized slavery, where you had the uh, elite, the noble class, and then you had uh, the church, and then you had um, uh, everybody else. And um, and the church that they're setting up now is the Church of Wokedom. And the, um, and the Church of Materialist Science. And the ultra-elite will be the new noble, the new nobility. And everybody else will just be serfs. That's what they want to set up. And that's antithetical to any sense of fairness or any sense of righteousness or dignity or, you know. So capitalism is fundamentally flawed, and it has been for a long, long time. We, we addressed it in, in, our, in the book that we wrote 14 years ago, and uh, it was our master's thesis that we wrote 22 years ago. We wrote about how the fundamental flaw in capitalism and the off-balance sheet debt, what they now call externalized costs and all these other euphemisms for, instead of calling it, instead of calling a spade a spade and calling it for what it is, off-balance sheet debt, exactly the same thing that brought down WorldCom and Enron. It's accounting fraud. It's accounting fraud. It's systemic accounting fraud across all of capitalism. And we demonstrated and proved it. 22 years ago, and we wrote it, uh, we published it in our book 14 years ago. And now people pretend to take it seriously, but they only pretend to take it seriously because they don't really take it seriously. Um, but again, that's like the Hasnamus himself, because lots of people pretend to be spiritual. And lots of people believe themselves to be spiritual. And lots of people believe that they are ascending. But they're not working on their egos. They like themselves. They like their I. They want that I to have powers, to have clairvoyance, to be able to talk to animals and awaken the astral plane and travel in the astral plane and have psychedelic experiences and 5D ascension and all this other bullshit. Pardon my language. That's because they're Hasnamusen. Because they're split. Intuitively, they want to advance and grow and develop. But practically, they are awakening that demon side of them, what's precious to them. What's most precious to them is their eye. They can't let go of it. <clears throat> they can't let go of their desires. They can't let go of their, their cravings and aversions and their attachments and their identifications, particularly with themselves, with their physical body, with their personality, with their sexuality, and all the rest of it. All the rest of it. 
with their race, their creed, their color. It goes on and on and on and on and on. <clears throat> Before we uh, sign off, does anybody have any other comments or questions or uh, anything else you want to contribute or share or... We'll give you a, a minute or so to type frantically into the chat if you want, if there's something you want to share with us before we go. But what um, <clears throat> we're closing in on the three and a half hour mark, so we think it's uh, it's probably everyone has had their fill by now. Um, <clears throat> this is one of those topics where. it's 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 a it's a harsh lesson it's a hard thing to to swallow um but the more aware we become now it's not an invitation for self-loathing and self-judgment and self-condemnation and all that sort of stuff that's not helpful that's not useful so it's it's a natural process to be demi-human before you can be human. We're not born human. Not this humanity. We're not. Well, in a way we are. When we're, in, when we're born um, uh, an infant, we're innocent. But all of our karma, all of our egos reincorporate by the time we're seven years old. So <clears throat> because we have that karmic baggage, so we have to become human. We have to create the human soul. And... As Benjamin shared with us, we have to separate the wheat from the chaff. And a seed is just a seed. So we have the seed has to grow into wheat. And alongside that seed growing into wheat, the egos grow along with it. But it's in the harvesting of the wheat that we separate the wheat from the chaff. And it's in the discernment and the recognition of what is the difference and the elimination of the chaff, the elimination of the weeds. And we are left only with what matters, what, what matters to us, what's good, to, what's good for us, what's good for others. And the knowledge of that process and the, the wisdom which we extract through going through that process is what's of real value. As Azel says, we're lucky to be alive in the first place. We are. And we're lucky, and we are lucky because we had we didn't reincarnate to get here. If we just returned here by karma, by chance, that the karmic circumstances uh, allowed us to return, then we are very lucky indeed. And the fact that we are here in the Kali Yuga, surrounded by all this depravity, by all this suffering, we have we have the potential to pay so much karma. We're tremendously fortunate. So we shouldn't look a gift horse in the mouth. We should take advantage of every opportunity. <clears throat> um, every opportunity to work on ourselves and every opportunity that we can to 
<clears throat> bring forth into the world for the sake of others that which is within us to give as gifts, as value. <clears throat> to do our job, to do our calling, to be who we were born to be. Benjamin says, thank you once again for elaborating on this very useful topic. It's hard to accept, but we must realize using real eyes that we must avoid many pitfalls in the Kali Yuga. Indeed, we are lucky to be here now. By the way, we, we, we love the use of that uh, pun. Realize using real eyes. We love that. Because as you know, we're all about seeing and seeking self-evident experiential knowledge, self-evident experience, using real eyes to realize with real knowledge. That's self-evident experiential knowledge. It's all connected. So we love that, Benjamin. We're and you as you know, it's our it's our purpose, it's our pleasure, it's our privilege to be here. And um, <laughs> and if it's true what Light Foreman said here earlier that we are on fire today in a good way, then all all the better for it. Because honestly, this was uh, we went into today with with uh, we really had to face some trepidation, some fear going into this because we had zero preparation and we we've been in a the, the, okay this this is our closing thought why we did this topic because you know mercury has been in retrograde this past week and we i don't know how long it's going to be in retrograde but it's been in retrograde and this past week uh the demon has been in charge like this past week has been I, we, we've just been in hell this past week and it's been uh, so hard and so this, but this topic of the Hasna Moose came up and it's like, you know, um, so many of these boxes out of the seven, right? So many of them were, were rearing their ugly head. The demon was, you know, was having its way with us this week. It was like, it was like, you know what? there's only one there's only one way for us to really face up to this and um and we had i had no idea how today was going to go i really just threw myself uh at this um all i had was this one page to work with and without any uh preparation whatsoever um, so that it worked out, you guys got value out of it, that warms our heart because that means we made something good came out of this week and that's, <laughs> and it's been just a week of just, uh, really, really tough, really nothing going well. <laughs> so Awaken Reflection says, thank you. I needed the reminder uh, that we are in hell. Um, it put it all back into perspective because this past week has been so horrible. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, your words, um, all of them were straight to heart, straight to all tears that I have dropped since last week. So, so you had, so you know what? Somehow, 
somehow we know that because Mercury was in retrograde, we know that others that, that our experience was not was not unique. Okay, and that again, that's why we're here in hell with you guys, so that so that we share this, we go through this stuff together, we go through it together. And and I say like, look, if I'm going through this, other people are going through this. And you know what? It's it's times like this when we're down and we're in the darkness and we're you know we're looking for the breadcrumbs. You know what? The breadcrumb is the dark. It is the pain. It is the suffering. Let's not try do our best not to identify, not to attach. Just observe it. See it for what it is. It is what it is. It's my dark side. It's my demon. It's my fear. It's my greed. It's my lust. It's my whatever. Observe it. Recognize it. Call a spade a spade. And then let it go. It is what it is. It came up. It reared its ugly head. It did this, it did that, it did the other thing. But you know what? Uh, this too shall pass. And my the, the breadcrumb is what knowledge, the self-evident experiential knowledge I can extract from having been aware and awake and conscious and relaxed and allowing this darkness, this ugly thing to rear its head, right? To, to, to poke its head. It's like, it's like waiting on the banks of the lock of, of Loch Ness, waiting for the Loch Ness monster to poke his head out so we can snap that picture, that million-dollar photo of the Loch Ness monster, because it's the million-dollar photo that's of value to us. So it can prove, aha, there's a monster in this lake, but it's a deep lake. The monster never comes up. So when he comes up, and the and the you know because the, the 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 skies are dark and it's a dark and stormy night and all things go to hell. That's when the that's when the monsters uh, pops out of the water, right? That's our opportunity to catch that glimpse of that monster, so we can study it, observe it in meditation, and know ourselves and say, "Aha, that's the nature of the beast. That's the beast that I have to overcome. That's the beast that that I've got to get." under control and comprehend and know its ways. How does it cause me suffering and other people suffering? Because once I comprehend that, then my divine mother can eliminate that because I've learned the lessons that the beast was there to teach me. So on Mercury's in retrograde, it's shit for everybody, myself included, no exceptions. Okay. But that's when a talk like this has so much power is that when we're in hell and we know we're in hell, then you know what? When in hell, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. When in hell, be Jane Goodall among the chimpanzees, okay? Be Jane Goodall among your de demons, right? Be uh, 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 Sir David Attenborough. Be a, a, a be Indiana Jones, an intrepid explorer of your own subconscious mind. If you're in hell, take advantage of it. Take advantage of being in hell. The breadcrumbs are there. The breadcrumbs are whatever you can extract from your observations. From uh, um, and as Azazel says, when in hell, arrange a barbecue. 
I'll bring the marshmallows. Actually, you know what? I'll bring, bring the Hungarian smoked bacon, which is Hungarian marshmallows. If you've never had it, it's we don't slice the bacon. It's it's chunks. It's like one inch chunks of smoked Hungarian bacon. You stick it on the end of a stick and you put it in the fire just like a marshmallow. But then you have a piece of sourdough rye bread and then you, 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 uh, you let all the grease as it's uh, frying, as it's uh, cooking out of the bacon and you drip it onto the bread. So the bread becomes soaked in bacon grease and then the, uh, the, the bacon becomes all crispy like a crispy cube uh, marshmallow of bacon. That's Hungarian marshmallows. Yeah, I know. Gnostics are not supposed to eat pork. I know that. You know that. <laughs> but the Hungarian in me doesn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> you see what did i say what did i say every kind of depravity conscious as well as unconscious i'm telling you guys i'm telling you i'm a naughty bad terrible gnostic i am i'm i'm, I'm not a good gnostic i'm not i'm bad 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 naughty 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 okay um so yeah so we're in hell i'll bring the uh, hungarian uh, uh smoked bacon so um Jennifer said, thank you. This past week has been rough for me and I feel lifted by what you have shared today. Well, we're glad somehow like, okay. Okay. So again, we knew that we're not the only one. We knew we're not the only one going through hell last week. So if you, if we could finish this week on the high note or look forward and say, well, no, we're not finishing the week. We're starting the new week. Sunday is the, that doesn't matter. If it's the last day of the week, then you're finishing the week on a high note. If it's Sunday for you is the first day of the week, then we're starting the new week with renewed vigor, renewed energy, renewed vitality. And as, as, as it says with a barbecue, we're starting the new week with a barbecue. How's that? There we go. And Awakened Reflection says, it is what it is. So grateful tonight. I shall dive deep into this darkness with your divine guidance. Thank you. You're most welcome. It's our privilege. It's our pleasure. Thank you all so much for, uh, for being with us today. Uh, we look forward to you joining us next week. Hopefully, uh, God willing, you will have a better week moving forward. Um, as Master Samael says, um, every exaltation is preceded by a great humiliation. That's another way of saying what goes down must come up. <laughs> and before we can have a great breakthrough or a tremendous new ups, upsurge, uptick in our lives, uh, it, it necessitates we we kind of crash we, we we go deep down first and then we we catch that draft on that upswing and um so we pray that all of us and all of you will experience that upswing even if maybe it's not this week or next week but whenever it comes that it will come and trust and have faith that it will come and in the meantime while we're down here down in the dank down in the dark Let's take advantage of that and just be here now and and keep observing ourselves and relax and allow and remember that this too shall pass and that this too is an essential part of the path. The Aum of life 
Jacob's ladder, Jacob's ladder, you cannot ascend without first descending because that ladder is not a ladder. Those two sides have been cut off, but that ladder is a spiral. That's what Jacob's ladder is. That's the hero's journey. We've gone through that in that video. You guys should have all seen it by now. Uh, that's the alm of life. So just know that it's all part and parcel. It's all part of it. And you got tough love on the descending side. But after you've hit rock bottom and we gathered whatever intel we needed to gather down here, then we have the next upswing. So, so again, thank you, all of you, for being here. Um, God bless. Blessings for the next week. And, um, and there's no other questions or comments. We will, um, <clears throat> we will bow out and look forward to seeing you again soon. Take care, all of you. Uh, blessings and inverential peace.